What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 57 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Molly Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to elders past, present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode, we're speaking with Harry Fletcher-Wood. Harry is a teacher, researcher, and teacher educator, and has written three books to date. The first is Ticked Off, Checklist for Teachers, Students, and School Leaders. The second, the enormously popular Responsive Teaching, Cognitive Science, and Formative Assessment in Practice. And his newest book, which we're speaking about today, is Habits of Success, Getting Every Student Learning. Harry is currently the Associate Dean at Ambition Institute, and he has worked in England, Japan, India, and Sweden. Harry is fascinated by making things better and the social, psychological and structural changes this requires, and you hear plenty more about this in this episode. Above all, Harry is an incredibly intelligent, productive and absolutely lovely guy, and it was an immense pleasure to have him on the podcast. His work has had a profound influence on me over the years, and I have little doubt that by the end of this episode, he'll have had a big impact on you too. If you enjoyed the recent episode with Pess McRae on motivating students, then hold on to your hat because this is another cracker of an episode sharing theory, strategy, tips and tricks to help motivate and empower students both in the classroom and at home. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. And this month, I'm excited to share that JCE has just released a new book by Oliver Cavigliolli entitled Organize Ideas, Thinking by Hand, Extending the Mind. Oliver has a real knack for approaching the intersection between images and ideas in new and effective ways. And this book is no exception. The book sets out to describe the how, why, and the what of graphic organizers, or more accurately termed, word diagrams. Caviglioli brilliantly discusses the relationship between our human memory system and resources external to it, such as our external memory field, and describes how to best utilize these resources to clearly communicate ideas to students, or really anyone we're working with. This book goes through 35 different types of visual organizers and, crucially, describes when and how to use them. Often the only visual tools in a teacher's toolbox may be the mind map or the flowchart. So if you're looking to expand your repertoire of powerful visual structures to enhance learning, then look no further. If you're keen to get your hands on organized ideas or any other John Cat book for 30% off, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERR30 at checkout. That code will also work for my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William referred to as, quote, a book I think every teacher should read. Again, for 30% off any JCE book, just enter ERRR30 at checkout. Or if you'd like a signed copy of CLT in action, personally signed by me and including a personalized message just for you, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash book and you'll see the steps for ordering a signed copy there. Now, without further ado, let's jump into episode 57 of the ERRR podcast with Harry Fletcher Wood. Harry Fletcher-Wood, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me. Harry, the first question we always ask people is, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Harry, what is it that you do? What's your answer? So if I'm talking to someone outside education, I just say, I used to be a teacher and now I train teachers because that's a lot easier than, you know, sort of garbling job titles and so on. 
if I'm talking to someone inside education, I'd say something like I, I work to try and help teachers get better, both directly through training and writing and indirectly through researching ways to do that. Cool. In terms of researching, are there any kind of key foci for that research at the moment? So I've spent most of the last year working with an amazing team of people doing a review of teacher professional development. So Sam Sims and I put out a paper, we put it out in draft about three years ago now, saying we're not sure that the evidence around professional development and what we're told about what to pursue is really right. And we completed a systematic review. So we looked at over 100 papers looking around some new themes. I'm not allowed to say what the results are because we have to wait for like the big drum roll moment where the Education Endowment Foundation, who funded it and supported it, uh, release it. I will say it was a really interesting piece of work. We found some really interesting stuff and we hope that it will just help people to look at professional development in some new ways and get more value out of what they do. So that's that's one thing I'm really interested in. Personally, I'm doing some PhD study around teacher behavior change that we might talk a bit more about later. Uh, and then I'm just starting to try and dig into kind of institutional growth, success and failure more generally, just because I think in particular the last year and a half, definitely almost every institution in Britain failed at some point to do what its entire purpose. And so that's just made me more interested in like how you make public service and how you make society as a whole function. But that's quite nebulous at the moment. I, yeah, nowhere near any conclusions on that. Okay. Wow. Just a few light topics of study there, Harry. <laughs> Got to keep your brain ticking over. But um, that's actually great because you've. I'm actually going to have Sam on to talk about your forthcoming paper. Cool. hopefully for that October 1st release or, or potentially for the next month. Because I read your paper on the, your kind of systematic review of the research a couple of months ago and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so good. I messaged Sam. I said, will you come on? He said, actually, just wait because something even better is coming out. So listeners can wait and be excited for that one. Would you tell us a little bit, I'm aware that you also work in the Ambition Institute and I had Peps on a couple of months ago. He told us a bit about what he does within it. Would you tell us a bit about, about your role in the course that you run? Yeah, cool. So as Peps probably mentioned, the uh, Institute as a whole, the goal is to help teachers keep getting better. And there's various different things that we do. So we have programs for newish teachers, we have programs for school leaders and so on. I I mean, I do various different things within that. But the, the thing that I'm personally responsible for is a program called the Teacher Education Fellows, which is for people whose job it is to help teachers get better. So in Britain, there'd be a role which is like head of teaching and learning, deputy head in charge of teach, teach development, something like that. And the idea of that, so I was made responsible for teaching and learning in my school a few years ago on the grounds that I was a pretty competent teacher or I looked like a competent teacher. And that's a, a helpful start, but it's really not enough because knowing some ways to teach history apparently effectively doesn't necessarily mean you can help the maths teachers get better. And you as a maths teacher, I'm sure, have experienced this kind of thing. So the course is designed to help people who are in exactly that position. So they're in charge of teaching and learning. They want to get better at doing that. So partly there's this sort of uh, slightly imposter syndrome thing. They've been placed into this role, help them do it really well. Partly there's kind of a, a slight terror because you're probably, if you're in that role, like the best read person in the school. So like, what am I missing? And the thing that it tries to create is, is a kind of community. So in the same way that if your main role is being a maths teacher, you've got a bunch of other maths teachers to talk to. Who do you talk to if your job is helping your colleagues get better? And so we take two years, we cover some of the key stuff that we think is useful for heads, and teacher, te heads of teaching and learning. We also support them to try stuff out. So there's like weekly activities. We do visits to see schools that are doing interesting stuff. And we try and create a community that works really, really well 
well for them. And I think that ends up being the most powerful thing is they just have a bunch of other really smart people who aren't in competition. Like, you know, in the same way, you, you can't say to like your immediate colleagues, like, oh, I'm really struggling with this school policy at the moment. But if you're talking to someone in a school 200 miles away, you can be really honest to someone who's experiencing similar challenges. And it's fantastic. We've, we've had five, we're onto our fifth cohort um, and some brilliant people have come through it. And we've learned a huge amount and hopefully they've learned some stuff as well. Fantastic. That sounds like a, a great support network and a, and a great curriculum as well. And um, yeah, I have, I think we mentioned the last time when I was chatting to Peps about the kind of curriculum that you've developed, the the learning learning curriculum that you kind of evolve every time. So you must be up to, if you've had four cohorts, are you up to the fourth iteration of that now? I need to do the fourth iteration. I have to redo our work around deliberate practice. And we were doing another thing around um, trying to create a good measure of teach a good measure that you could use to evaluate the quality of teach development within the school so the idea is yeah like the the, the work the, the thinking that we do we try and turn it into publications that everyone can use and that's also a way of like crystallizing what we've learned and so all that stuff is is written with like I kind of like facilitate it happening because I've got the time to do it that people working in schools don't have but a lot of it is written by people who are just doing the job and captures what they've learned that's great hey what do you think should be the purpose of school-based education? I almost wanted to duck this question, but given that I'm going to go on later and say like, oh, having really clear goals is really important, I realized I couldn't. And the reason why I think I wanted to duck it is because I used to be really certain about the answer to this. And I've just definitely been certain about it in more than one different way. And maybe as I, I get older and grayer and hopefully a little bit wiser, I'm just like letting go of some of that certainty. So I have a lot of time for the argument that school-based education, the most powerful thing it can do is teach us biologically secondary skills. So I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with this distinction between biologically primary things that you learn, like you pick up your mother tongue pretty much irrespective of whether anyone tries to teach it to you. You just pick it up by like babbling and having people talk to you and, and, and so on. And likewise, you know, you learn to walk, like most kids don't get any training in learning to walk, they just scrabble about until they, they walk. And then there are some things that you won't pick up unless someone teaches them to you. And that's things like mathematics, reading and writing, and we're not biologically evolved to, to learn these things. And so I think there's a really good case, like, everyone's going to learn to talk. No one's going to, very few people are going to learn to read unless someone teaches them to do so. And so that school can and should focus on that. Equally, with a child of my own and having had lockdowns in the UK, you know, you, you realise things like the importance of socialisation. So like, you know, is it worth sending your kid to school to socialise with others? Well, they'll socialise with someone somewhere. But actually, if, you know, most kids are there like that that is an important thing to learn and get better at and then you know i'm coming around almost to you know the, the, i think the idea of cultural transmission is is at least interesting and having taught in japan like there's a, a claim that schools in japan their main function is to teach you to be japanese rather than to, to teach you stuff and they are an engine of creating a culture and creating the next generation and equally if you read teaching as a subversive activity i think there's there's value in schools fighting against that and helping kids to open their eyes to, you know, what's wrong with our current culture and what, what can we change it? And so I come around to agreeing with Laura McInerney, where she says, like, we'll probably never agree on what the purpose of education is. And maybe that's okay. So I was talking to a parent the other day about the nearest school to, to my house. And he was like, I'm not going to send my child there because it's too academic. I'm going to send it somewhere else. And I'm like, that's interesting because that's like, what else do you want a school to be? And I, I think what we take from that is most school systems will never be hyper effective because you can only be hyper effective around a, a given purpose. And as long as you think school is about cultural transmission, and I think it's about biologically secondary skills, and someone else thinks it's about socialization, 
and those distinctions, like those fault lines run between parents, between teachers, between ministers, between governments, everyone's always going to be pulling in different directions. And so mate, you can have like a hyper-effective school where it's like, this is what we really care about. And so they attract teachers that want that and they attract parents that want that and kids that want that. Um, but most school systems won't achieve that. I think there are exceptions. So like Singapore is quite interesting in terms of having a school system where I think there's a lot more conformity around what everyone is after. Um, but I think the chances of Britain and I, I guess Australia ever achieving that kind of agreement or conformity are, are about nil. Do you think they should? I don't think that's like compatible with like democracy and individual liberty and like quite individualistic cultures where people believe different things. Like I could design you a school system that would achieve the stuff that I really care about, but I don't think it would be right to impose that on 25, 50% of parents, teachers, everyone else who think it should be something different. Mm -hmm. I think. What do you think? I, I love that. I was chatting to another teacher the other other day and we were talking about a, a high-performing school in our area. And the, the comment the other teacher made was, yeah, yeah, they're definitely on the right track. And the response I made was, I think they're on a right track because they're, you know, they're going very hard down the direct instruction kind of approach. And I think, you know, that is definitely a right track. But, you know, in line with what you were saying, uh, I think there are multiple right tracks that schools can take depending upon the goals of the, the leadership, the students, the community around them, the parents. And I am Personally, I love the idea that there's a diversity of schools and opportunities and ways because I think that creates a diverse society and, and a really enriching one as well. But yeah, it's interesting. It's not kind of an, uh, an answer that anyone on the podcast has, has come up with so far, like I guess intentional diversity, cultivation of diversity or anything like that. So that's cool. Thanks for bringing that, Harry. I, th I think the, the one thing that, so I read Hayek on the recommendation of Dylan William years ago, having, when he first recommended it, I was like, you're recommending who? And then I read it and, and I, there's just this fundamental point around like, with central planning, you can achieve certain things really, really effectively. But it won't like you can never beat you can the center can never have more in, information understanding the, than the individual, and so you have to have a degree of yeah like diversity and uh, and I guess there's there's an evolutionary uh, argument to this right is like maybe we have schools that are really good for creating the things that we want now and then an asteroid hits and actually maybe we'd need like all the kids who've been to Steiner schools who'd be much better adjusted to like life after an asteroid and that's like obviously like a comic book example but this idea of like yeah, there's, there's, there's loads of different roles in society, there's loads of different things society needs. And so creating conformity around one model would have like some short term gains, but bigger, bigger barriers subsequently. Yeah. And I, I think one of the other, not that I've read Hayek directly, but one of my understandings of one of his other ideas is different kind of leadership and governance structures for different scales of organization and society. So that's another thing. It's like, it doesn't make sense for us to suggest that a Steiner school with 50 kids runs the same way as some huge multi-academy trust with thousands and thousands of kids. So factoring in those things as well, I think is super valuable, valuable to think about. So we're here today to talk about, I mean, there's, there's already um, about 10 directions we could take, Harry, but I'm going to stick stick to the plan. We're here to talk about your your book, which is coming out pretty much at the same time as this podcast. I believe, or it's just it's just come out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Comes out tomorrow, so that's very exciting. Twentieth of August, and it's called Habits of Success. Why habits, Harry? So there's two answers to this. Part of the answer is to say I started trying to write like the working title was nudging for teachers because I was interested in like behavioral science and that is often sort of 
uh, thought of as being about nudges. So if you like change the wording of an email, you can get more people to like donate money to charity or sign up to the organ donation register or whatever it is. And what I realized as I wrote it was that wasn't all that I thought mattered about it. And that often like an, a nudge in itself can be quite transient and can be great if you've got like a single email campaign, you want people to do one thing. But what we're after is is lasting change, I think, for our students, not just, you know, we don't want them to try hard today. We want them to try hard every day. And so I, I was moving away from the idea of nudging. Tied to that, while I was working on the book, I do, you know, bits and pieces of training or I talk to people. And, and the questions I got asked quite often were like, how can I motivate my students or how can I help my students to self-regulate? And I sort of feel like those maybe aren't the best goals. So I think motivation is we, we work so hard to like motivate our students and it just it never works. Like it, it works for some of them some of the time and motivation is important to get started, but it's so fickle. Like, you know, one kid likes this, another kid likes that, another kid likes the other. And so what you end up with is like, oh, I'm going to plan a lesson to try it. But, oh, you know, Sensei really likes writing and Sensei really hates writing. So what am I going to do? And it's also fickle in as much as, you know, today I'm motivated and tomorrow I'm like tired and not motivated. And so relying on motivation for to get, relying on motivating 30 students simultaneously to do the same thing or creating a lesson that motivates 30 students to do different things is effectively impossible. And then also when I looked at the evidence, like it seems motivation is as much a concept of achievement as a cause. So we look at kids who are doing really well and we're like, oh, so-and-so is really motivated and they're doing really well. And we assume the motivation causes the success, but actually it's just as much the other, like so-and-so is successful and so they're motivated to keep going. So I'm like, okay, let's not do motivation. And I also, I think self-regulation is great if you can make it work. But it's really hard because you're, it takes up a whole load of cognitive capacity and you have to so give an example in the book, like, you know, your students doing a task and you want them to self-regulate and they make a mistake. So they have to like recognize they've made a mistake, like we'll stop and think, recognize they've made a mistake, have a repertoire of alternative strategies, choose a better strategy and get going on it. And that what we're talking about there is like really strong expertise and so self-regulation is another it's not a consequence but like it's a goal it's something you can build on as you've built expertise it can't be causal to initial expertise and so it's like how do we work around this well actually if we form habits if we form a habit of always working really hard always doing our homework always like saying constructive things we don't have to be motivated to do those things we just do it and if we form a habit of choosing an appropriate technique or a habit of pausing and checking whether we're going down the right track that's what brings us the the kind of lasting success that that we're after so i i came around to the idea that this is maybe the key to student achievement is going for habits rather than going for motivation or self-regulation or something else yeah fascinating you said so much in there that i'd love to pick up on oh let's jump into the model. So something you've done really, really well in this book. And I feel like you and Peps must talk about your models and your <laughs> your refinements and your mnemonics and, and your acronyms and things like that a lot. But something you've done really well and clearly put a lot of effort and thought into is kind of boiling everything down into this one acronym, which is Simplify. Could you take us through Simplify and what it, what it helps us do? Yeah, sure. So if you want someone to change, simplify it, specify what you want them to change, inspire and motivate them to get started, plan commitments for when and where they're going to act, um, make it easy for them to initiate action and then follow up to keep them going. And if you follow those five steps, you're putting in place the ingredients to, to form a habit. Great. We will dive into each of those phases of the simplifier model. Uh, something I was interested in is I've been following your blog for quite a while and you were writing for a while 
about the EAST framework, the E-A-S-T framework. And I noticed a shift from that. I'm curious, is, was, did you initially plan to write the book around EAST and then you kind of change? And if so, why did you change? What was EAST? And yeah, what prompted the, the change? Yeah, top tip if you want to slow down your book writing is to like restructure the entire thing a year in, which is what I did. So I was writing it around East and I just felt like it wasn't, you know, sometimes you're writing a thing and like there's something else trying to come out. And so you're trying things and you're like, this doesn't add up. And one particular thing that I found was like, so so I think East is really useful, really memorable. It's something that I talk to teachers about, something that I'd, I'd used for myself. But then you look at things. So one thing I think we might talk about later is, is implementation intentions, this idea of sort of specifying when and where you're going to act. And so that's like a time to, to do with timeliness. That's planning out the time. But it's also social because it's to do with a, a good implementation intention you might tell to someone else because that makes it more likely that you'll feel Im- impelled to do it. And so I had this framework where I couldn't neatly put things in one place and which didn't capture the, the, the process that you'd go through. So like, would you start by making it easy? Would you finish by making it timely? Like maybe if you want like one single thing to take from the book and this podcast, like if you want people to do a thing, make it easy. That's that's great. But it, I think the, the idea of Simplify is, is progressive and you, you have to work through each stage where you, I think you're more likely to have success if you work through each stage one at a time and East just didn't offer that. Mm. Okay. Well, just, just for listeners, what were the four words of East? Easy, attractive, social, and timely. So if you want someone to do something, make it easy, make it attractive, put in social influences and make it timely, which means asking at a right time or, or um, teeing them up to do it at a particular time. Great. I was interested because the book, it actually seems quite a bit bigger than Habits. And when I saw the, the, the title, I was like, oh, it's going to talk about, you know, cues and then chains or behavior patterns and rewards and how to reinforce each. Um, but it did seem to me more about motivation. Why did you choose to stick with the kind of habits idea? So I've now read like a lot of hot behavioral psychology. It sometimes feels like everyone's talking about the same thing, but coming at it from a different angle, right? So Sensei says habits are really important. And then they talk about cues and rewards and, you know, so on. And someone else says like, I don't know, like self-management is really important. And they talk about cues and rewards and habits. So in some ways, you know, like we're all talking about the same stuff. Like we're often talking about the same body of research. To me, it was it was because the the habits were were the goal, and because the habits kind of so yeah. Like in the middle bits of the book, we're talking about motivation. I say like you could use this for anything. You can like inspire, try and inspire, and motivate people to just like do their homework once. But because I think habit is a worthy goal, that's kind of the the box that everything fits in and works towards. But you can you can take bits out of it and use it any any way you like if you'd rather. Mm. Okay. And so that's kind of where that follow-up comes in, in terms of really instilling that habit, that last step, the F. Cool. All right. Let's jump into, let's jump into each of the steps. So S in simplify is for specify. Tell us about the role of prioritization and, and specificity. I think we make life really difficult for ourselves by trying to do too many things and trying to do too many things at once. And Partly that is a problem of cognitive capacity. Like it just, like I can't think about multiple things at once. And then tied to that, there's a, there's an effort thing. So if I'm coming into the classroom and like, well, today I want to make sure students are like, or you, you can, I talked about this in, in responsive teaching about academic goals. If I say like my goal is for students to understand character and write a diary extract and practice their collaboration skills, like mm, we, we might manage one of those well and my head will be and my instructions and success criteria are going to be all over the place. And the same applies if you've got some kind of behavioral goal it's like you know i want students to be like trying harder and being nice to each other and doing this and doing that and gonna be all over the place and tied to this i think it's it's really easy to say like 
um, well, it's quite easy. People are, are reluctant to say our number one priority is student well-being, whatever, you know, whatever. Um, it's harder to say our number one priority is student well-being. And as a result, we're not going to chase homework because student well-being is more important than homework, for example. Uh, and it's harder still to then act on that. So, you know, you can find people who say like, oh, this is our number one priority and we really believe in that. And they say, well, OK, how come you're putting like 30 percent of your time into some of this other issue? Uh, you know, we kind of have to. We always have done and so on. If behavior change is really hard because all, all change is hard, if you want it to happen, I think you have to be quite single minded about what your number one priority is and pursue that wholeheartedly until you either get where you want to go or learn that you need to be shifting your goals some, somehow. So to, to make that a bit more concrete, you think you, you have to like drill down to the real thing you want. So like students are like not sitting quietly and working. So like, is it that you want students to sit quietly? Well, no, probably not. Like that might make your life a bit easier, but it's not your goal as a teacher. You need to drill down to like, what is the one thing that really needs to happen? It's like, I want students to be engaging wholeheartedly in their work and working really hard and like trying their best until they're genuinely as stuck as they can be and they've done everything we can. Now we've got a more concrete goal that we can prioritize around and say, well, okay, I can spend, I'm going to, in terms of behavior, like my goal in this lesson is going to be focusing on that. And I'm not going to worry so much about something else while I do it. Yep. Where where do you see this often becoming an issue? Are there Are there some kind of places where you're like, you see time and time again, our oh, specificity is just not there and it's creating a problem. Literally all day, every day. Like the number of times that you talk to someone, go into a meeting, talk to someone about their goals as a school, talk to someone about their goals as an individual, and they just want loads of things. And that's fine. Like I, I get it. I want loads of things as well. But anytime there's, there's – I, th- I try and use – I don't know if it's succeeded, but I think I try and use, say, like a priority rather than priorities. Okay. <laughs> um, because as soon as you've got multiple priorities, it's really difficult for you to say, like, here's, here's the, you need to be able to say, one useful way to think about it is like the marginal minute. So if you have like one, let's say the bell doesn't go for like one extra minute, you have one bonus minute in the lesson. What are you going to spend that minute on? Like, you can only have one answer to that question. Or, you know, like you have two emails come in, you can only answer one of them. Which one are you going to answer? And any time that you don't have a clear answer to that, I think it's probably helpful to do a little bit more prioritization. Mm, where's that idea of the marginal minute come from? I love that. I mean, I probably stole it from someone, but like I think from from my head, in, approximately, we in education and maybe everywhere, we talk too much in the abstract, I think. Uh, and it's like, and, and it's really easy to keep talking in the abstract because we're just, oh, you know, we all care about kids and da 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 da. And whenever you've got an abstract thing and you turn it into concrete, so, okay, you care about kids. What is like the most important thing you did yesterday that showed that you care about kids? That helps us to communicate in a meaningful way and helps us to understand our own priorities more, I think. Mm. Do you have any um, other tips or tricks to push people towards specificity? So one's like, if you had one extra minute, what would you spend it on? The other was like, if you have, you know, 10 emails which and you can only respond to one, which one would it be? Do you have any other strategies? So I think if, if you, like just asking people what, what's the priority, but then, you know, potentially there's an interesting thing. If you go back to my, my lesson example, there's an interesting thing to say, well, okay, you say your number one priority is uh, multiplication skills. Let's go through your lesson plan. What's this bit to do with? What's this bit to do with? And if your number one priority is multiple, multiplication skills, do you really want to be spending 10 minutes on this other activity? And it might be there's good, you know, maybe you're doing some cool interleaving or retrieval. Maybe there's a great reason for it, but that kind of like accounting for the link between your goal and your actions, I think is is really powerful. Mm. Okay. 
uh, the thing that's coming to mind now, I've got quite a few students preparing for tests at the moment and there's a lot of content they've got to prepare for for the test. And I'm trying to support them to be specific about what exactly they're trying to learn at each point and what they're trying to do. But for some of them, it's like they have to learn everything or they have to revise 10 different success criteria or something like that. Do you have any um, ideas of how to support specificity in an area where there is actually a set a set of priorities that you actually have to kind of kind of tackle? Yeah, sure. And it's, it's just to break it down, right? So like specifically your goal, how long, how long until your students set their exams? Oh, there's a test. There's a test tomorrow. There's a test on Tuesday. Okay. Okay. So they're in, they're in. there's always tests though, Harry. So that's... if you had a week, I'd say like, okay, for one day, your goal is X. For, for another day, your goal is Y. And then we're going to want some retrieval. So on day three, your goal is like X and Y uh, to, to revise both of them. Um, and so it's it's to allow them to, I mean, we know like multitasking is essentially, essentially impossible. So it's to allow them to focus on one thing at a time hopefully to the point of mastery or to as much as they can manage before a fair time budget pushes them on but but this like i've got 10 things to do that's a recipe for inertia like we'll talk later on about making starting easy i think knowing that like my one job today is x and when i finish that my job becomes y is like a lot makes it a lot easier to get started and it's kind of more empowering right so you've got a bite-sized goal i'm gonna spend an hour on it then it's done i can tick that off and then i can move on to something else Cool. Do you build that? Is that how you run your days? Do you have some process to build that in to stay specific and focus? Yeah. So partly my day structure is about habit. So like always trying to write at certain times, always have a, a point where I do like batch process all my emails, have time for, for deep work. So, so partly it's following that habit and it'd be like weird if I didn't do a bit of writing in the morning or whatever. But yeah, it is like I will not be answering emails or looking at my emails or doing anything other than task x when like my job is my job is to like write a thing i'm going to sit i'm going to write the thing and i'm not doing anything else until that's done or like for that hour whatever how long i've budgeted on it and then i'll move on to something else do you use any technology to support that or anything yeah um so i have time blockers on so like i can't access certain websites at certain times twitter being the obvious one so like i can't access twitter until um uh, mid-afternoon when my attention and focus are falling anyway uh, i use like a sort of instant lockdown function to like cut access to the entire internet but something you can work around that if you go to a different browser so like when my partner's out i'll go and unplug the router and then i will focus that's when i'm going to get my get best work done wow amazing so that's specify, getting really specific. And there were some great tips there that, that, that came out. Thanks, for that, Harry. The next is, so it's simplify, S, and then M, that's like the inspire and motivate. So both things together. When I, when I spoke to Peps, I'll refer to my discussion with Peps a few times today because there was a bit of crossover between the books and I think they're very complementary actually. And so some of the things, this kind of inspire and motivate kind of came into the category of boost buy-in uh, in terms of Pep's work. And he talked about, you know, offering choice, repeating the message, making making it vivid and tangible and elaborate on the rationale, you know, really explain the why. You mentioned those things as well. Something else you mentioned was this idea of helping people see the, the relevance of an activity by reflecting on the problem or simulating a problem for them, which I thought was a really, really interesting idea. Do you, do you want to talk, talk to us about that a bit? Yeah, so I think I first got this from 
Craig Barton. I first saw it articulated by Craig Barton, who was channeling uh, an American mathematician called Dan Meyer, who talks about the headache aspirin model. So he says, like, let's see ourselves, uh, let's see yourself as a teacher, as an aspirin seller. Your job is to try and get people to take aspirin, aspirin being the learning. So if you try and force aspirin down people's throats, they're not going to thank you for it. And they're going to kind of like hate you and hate aspirin. Um, your ideal customer has a mild headache and then they're going to come running. So how do we create a headache? And so the example he gives in, in mathematical terms is like math, is, it doesn't have to mean you're like, oh, you're in the supermarket and you're trying to like buy three oranges and six. And what's the ratio between that? If you want 16 oranges and whatever. Um, so it's like maths has a point in maths. So you potentially, well, one example from a set he's collected is if you ask students to shade, you, you want to introduce uh, simplifying fractions, you ask students to shade um, 17 out of 34 segments in a circle. And you've like provided it can be done, but it's like there's a better way to do this. And so you've introduced the idea of simplification in like a very practical way that doesn't mean you have to like make up the kind of going to the shops example. I think about this quite often in terms of working with teachers, right? So if you think if you're providing some kind of training session for teachers and you rock up and you're like, hey, I've got this great new technique, like half the people in the room already don't want to hear you because they like they've heard about the technique already. They teach a different subject to you, so they know it doesn't apply. They just don't want to be told what to do. And I understand all of those things. And I think it's just a lot, like a lot more productive way to approach things is to turn up and talk about the problem so you say like okay tell me about a recent time that a student forgot a thing that you thought they should have remembered or like tell me how like are you happy with how settled learning is in your class and if you can agree there's a problem then people are going to be a lot more willing to talk about potential solutions and so that is that's the fundamental of the model and i think it you know it can work just as well with with a behavioral thing like talk to a student how are you feeling right now are you feeling frustrated are you having a good day what can we do to solve that like i am working with you to solve a problem we both agree is an issue and yeah so i talk about you could like it could be the problem already exists and you say okay let's talk about what the problem is and just make sure people recognize it. it alternatively it could be that you simulate the problem if they can't see it so like you can't see that their organization is rubbish and it's definitely gonna be really hard for them to pass their exams so okay we're gonna have a race who is the first person who can find the work we did on 12th of july go and you know the kid who's got like filed all their paperwork at random is going to take longer than the student who's like you know laid it all out put in file dividers and whatever and so you're simulating this problem and saying well okay maybe this is an issue maybe this is something we need to to think about mm, that's a really good one, that organization one i love that example so that's one way to kind of inspire and motivate getting students to reflect on a problem or teachers and, and or simulate that issue so have you simulated any problems for teachers have i simulated problems for teachers nah not really. I think you have to be quite... So classic activity is one where you're working with teachers about trying to show them that English English is an additional language students are going to have different challenges. And so you do a thing where it's like, okay, translate this text from a foreign language, or like you give lesson instructions in some language that you speak, right? Middle English or something. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so for example, I, like I had a training session I experienced in which like you had to color code, you had to like color in a ship color coded and the, the letters, the code was in Arabic and I, I could read Arabic. So I was like, oh, great. This is easy. And everyone else is like, what the hell's going on? But I, I think like, it's very, very easy for people to be turned off by that and feel patronized or like, uh, I think you can only do that when you've got an existing strong relationship with a group of people. I wouldn't do it unless I knew people well and they trusted me because you just don't want to have people feeling like alienated or stupid before you've got into like 
Oh, and by the way, I'm Harry, and I'd like to talk to you about retrieval practice or whatever it is. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, that's the first idea of, in terms of inspiring and motivating, reflecting on a problem or simulate a problem. The second one that really stuck out to me from the book was show how great figures succeed. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so people are inspired by what they see others do, and, and like a, a role model, someone who chooses a role model is someone who you kind of emulate and measure yourself against. I think there's a couple of bits of this that are sometimes underestimated. So one is like people choose their own role models and you can't just because you've said Senso is a role model, like people will choose the people who they want to look up to. And a role model needs to be someone who is 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 credible and believable in some way. Uh, and I think that the other the other thing that is often underestimated is we, every six months or a year, there's like, oh, everything is falling apart because kids role models are like awful celebrities. Um, and then if you ask students, who do you look up to? Who, who do you who's your role model? Most students, at least under 12, 13, will say their parents, like the overwhelming majority. And even those who are older are quite unlikely to say like, yeah, maybe they think it's cool if you can like have, you know, cars and, you know, whatever else kids want these days. But it's they're more realistic, I think, than than we think. So we want to show how we want to show them that role models in some way can uh, like a lighting a path they might want to follow. If you want to stick with the celebrity line, there's there's quite a cool study that was done by Professor Simon Burgess in the UK who showed when Michelle Obama or when the Obamas visited um, the UK a few years ago, Michelle Obama went to a particular girls' school, and then like a few months later, she met some of the girls from that school at Oxford, and then she invited them, some of them, over to the White House, and the results in that one school jumped by, I can't remember, it's like 15, 20% that, that year for their public exams. So contact with someone inspirational who provides you with an inspirational message can, can be quite powerful. If you don't have the time and resources to, to get Michelle Obama in, there've been much, much simpler, small scale, scale studies. So there was a cool one uh, published in, I think, 2016 called Even Einstein Struggled. And so they they had texts about like Einstein, Marie Curie, and I think it was Faraday, and some stuff about them, but also some stuff about like oh, the difficulties that they had in their lives. And it showed that students who were asked to read these texts got higher grades, and particularly low attainers, and said that they tended to identify with these famous people. So you can pick out people who have an inspirational message, or you can just get students to think a bit harder about their existing role models. So if they already look up to their parents, like how critically are they looking at what their parents do? They can't, you know, like kids, I think, just assume their parents do whatever whatever needs to be done uh, un uncomplainingly. So saying like, okay, what, whatever whatever your parents do, like when do they have to be really diligent? When do they have to be really organized? Go and ask them. And so use that hopefully to try and help students like appreciate whatever it is that you're hoping they'll aspire to. Mm. Do you have an example of like, you know, we're trying to cultivate X in students, therefore role model Y is really valuable? I mean, I think you could, you could do that for, for anyone or anything. I think a quite, quite a powerful one is a student a year or two above. So I think it's, it's quite socially complex if you say like, hey, look at Senso in your class who aren't they great be like them there's so many reasons that could go wrong was actually if you get a student who's like two three years older they're much more credible that student who you're promoting as the role model isn't under the same social pressure to to like not stand out or whatever 
and you can see how like oh actually in two years time in three years time i could be doing what this person does and the, the, i mean loads of schools will put up posters of where their students have, have gone or whatever but potentially like is there a thing in terms of inviting those students back not just to be like oh, i'm great but to talk about okay what were you doing when you were sitting in this in in a desk right here there's a really cool charity in the uk that that does this that specifically tries to organize alumni networks for our public schools like st- state schools with the idea that there's a specific power to saying like if a student who literally sat in that classroom where you were sitting can now go on and be whatever you can definitely do it too Mm, that's super powerful and in terms of looking at a role model a couple of years ahead of you that ties really nicely into this next thing i wanted to ask you about which is the kind of third point about inspire and motivate that i want to ask you about which is the idea of letting students persuade themselves how does that often work so the, the, there's a nice paper on this, which which talks about the saying is believing effect. So if you get someone to articulate a thing, they appear to be more like wholeheartedly, they appear to be more likely to believe it. So there've been some really cool studies. And unlike many psychological studies, they seem to replicate so far, where, for example, one of them was done in college, university. So they get first year undergraduates and say, can you write a letter to next year's first year undergraduates saying, you know, you're you're bound to feel a little bit unsettled. Don't worry. University's hard, but you'll fit in and you'll feel great. And if, and, and they come back three years later and they find these, these students who've written the letter are more likely to have, have completed the, the course and have got higher grades, which is mad when you think about it. But then this has been replicated with students in schools as well. And the idea is that if you catch people at the right time, you help them to change their attributions about lasting processes. So if you catch people in week one and say, look, can you just tell someone else that X and that changes the way they think? And then that changes how they pursue the opportunities that that come up. So instead of in week two, there's like an opportunity and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I guess I'll fit in eventually. Maybe I'll give it a go. And that has a, a recursive effect. So, yeah, I think it can be really powerful. And I think it ties into to this idea of sort of altruistic motives that like if you want to know what you should do, ask yourself what advice you would give a friend. There's a, a cool set of videos. I don't know, you know, they're probably framed, but um of sending kids up to like little kids up to sort of teenage smokers and the kids like sort of no, a 10 year old saying please can I have a cigarette and then the teenager is like oh no you shouldn't be smoking and there's this idea of like well okay this this is quite powerful a powerful way of helping them to think through what do you really believe about this what is the right thing to do yeah that's interesting in terms of um the way that I think something that can also influence the advice people give is who they're talking to. I heard about this this interesting bit of advice that was like often the advice that doctors give is overly kind of conservative because they don't want to get sued or whatever. So when a doctor gives you advice, if you want to find out what they really think, you can say, if your mother was in the same situation as I am right now, what what advice would you give her? And often they'd be like, oh, actually, just don't worry about it too much. Just you know, go for a couple more walks or something. So that's interesting too. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I'm told, I can't remember where this come from, but I'm told like don't ask what would you do in my shoes? What would you tell what would you tell your mother to do? What would you tell someone else to do? And yeah, I mean it stands to reason, right? It's like that you you're probably even more advising your best self, you're advising people the best thing to do. Yeah, awesome. So, we've simplified, we've inspired and motivated. The next thing we want to do is help people to plan. So, some of the some of the ideas from a previous podcasts have been, you know, take key try to establish new norms and things like that at transition points, try to, you know, break break routines, use landmark moments as a kind of planning to initiate planning. 
One thing that you talked about a lot in your book was the idea of prompts and just getting people to prompt themselves or prompting students. What, what makes a good prompt? I think primarily the timing of it and also the, the clarity. So it's picking a moment that is, is a really good moment and then putting the prompt in a way that's going to catch you for that moment. So if you've ever um, really wanted to remember something the next day and you had to like take your passport for a flight or whatever, and so you put it on your shoes so you couldn't leave the house without doing it, then then you've done that. Um, so if we're thinking about our students, it's like, okay, where is the best place? If you want them to like remember the, the classic thing, is like tie a knot in your tie it's like that's you know i remember being told that as a, as a kid and being like what but it's like so obvious because like you can't not notice that if you're getting dressed for school so in the same way it's getting inside their heads and potentially asking them like what things are you definitely going to look at on your way like maybe you're putting it on the cereal box if it's remembering your homework to bring it into school um getting inside their heads and finding out what what is the ideal moment to do this i think places like front of students exercise books on the desk by the whiteboard, uh, on the door as students are coming in, like places like that are all really powerful places to put a prompt. And the other thing is to, yeah, just to, to think about the time. So like, is there an existing habit? James Clear talks about habit stacking. So if you add an existing habit to a new habit, if you always do such and such after breakfast, add the new habit after that, and it'll be easier to remember. That's great. And so in, in addition to prompts, one of the things you talk about is checklists. Basically the same question I asked, what, make, what makes a good checklist? Not too few and not too many items, like ideally no more than seven. The critical things that are really going to make a difference and that you're most likely to forget. And then the the um, picking the right moment to, to use it and planning how you're going to use it. So are you going to work your way through it? So like I'll do this, I'll read the checklist, then do the thing, read the checklist, do the thing. Or are you going to do everything and then double check you've done everything off the checklist? So just thinking thinking through how you're going to use it. And potentially a kind of collaboration around writing it. So, you, you know, you can ask students to write a checklist and use that as a way to help them crystallize their thinking. You could get someone else to re review your checklist and make sure everything important is on there. Mm, that's great. I, one of the couple of things you said there really struck out, stuck out to me. One was only put on the, put on the things that are really important and the things that you might forget. I've had an interesting relationship with to-do lists over the years. Often, you know, I've found that I want, I want to put too much on there and then it just gets absolutely redundant and ridiculous. So now I'm at a point where I do have a to-do list, but the things that go on it are only the things that it's really going to cost me if I forget them. And so I check it every day and often there's like not much on it, but it's like I know there's something coming up in two weeks time that if I miss that, that's really going to cost me. So yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is really powerful about a checklist is once you've done everything, the ability to relax. You're like, I've done everything that's really important uh, and I can feel better as a result because if I've been through my checklist, I've probably not missed anything crucial. Totally. Now, the first book you wrote, as far as I'm aware, was actually called Ticked Off, which was specifically about checklists. Is there anything you've kind of learned or changed your mind about in terms of checklists since you wrote that book? So I think that came out of, was in some ways like a first attempt to answer some of the questions that I'm answering in Habits of Success. It's like, how can we help people to do the things that matter most under pressure? And that's, it's like a question that obsesses me. And I'm really interested in like how you help pilots and how you help police officers and so on. Like any, and, and teachers are a prime example of this. Like you're under a huge amount of pressure. There's loads of things you can do. There's loads of things you should do. And there's loads of things that if they go wrong, you're really going to know about it. So how do you help people to make these decisions really well? So an interesting bit of feedback, I, I wrote in that book, ticked off about pause points. So this idea of picking the moment that you're going to use the checklist, and that's going to be really important. And in retrospect, that's maybe the most important idea because you can write a checklist and still just ignore it. And 
the checklists are just one part of an overall set of things that can contribute. Uh, and there are lots of other things that you need to do if you're going to achieve the lasting changes you're after. And in some ways, maybe that this new book is my way of saying, well, okay, what are all the other ways we can help people to respond well under pressure? And checklists are just one part of it. Now, the last idea of plan, and I think one that's, that's well, the last one I want to touch on today and one that's gained a lot of traction. And whenever I talk about this in, you know, workshops or PD, this is one of the things that people are like, oh, I really love that, is is the idea of implementation intentions uh, and, you know, which is often coupled with the idea of action triggers. Tell us a little bit about this powerful idea, Harry. So the idea is there's a big gap between an intention and what well, we, know, we know. There's many a slip between cup and lip, right? I mean, we all want to do all the right things. And then lo and behold, we've still not been for our jog and we're still eating junk food and whatever else. So people often want to do a thing and genuinely want to do it and then don't. An implementation of intention is a way of bridging this gap between an intention, a goal intention, I want to do X, and a detailed plan for when and how you're going to do it. So instead of just saying, I'm going to go for a run, well, I'm going to go for a run on Saturday uh, immediately before breakfast becomes like a concrete plan. And so then on Saturday, I'm, oh, I'm sure there's something that I was meant to be doing. And if you've committed to someone else, like, oh, wasn't there something you were meant to be doing this morning? That kind of thing. And it's probably one of the most robustly evidenced ideas in the book because there's a whole meta-analysis of pushing on 100 studies, loads of different populations, which shows consistently helping people to make these plans makes a really big difference in the likelihood of them acting on the plans. Mm. I love some of those implementation intention studies, and I think they really kind of bring to life the power of a simple change. So you, could you tell us about one? Maybe, I don't know, there's the, the voting one from Goldwitzer in 1999 or something like that. That's a great one. Or you might have another one that's, that's better to really illustrate the power of a simple tweak. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a non, not one that hasn't been done as a study, but just like the most obvious one that springs to mind for me is like, how many hundred times have you told kids this is the homework? And he say, like, write, write down the homework. And at a cost of approximately 10 extra seconds, say, and write down when and where you're going to do it. Uh, and I just think it's, it's like it's such an obvious and easy thing that we could do. In terms of uh, the academic studies, there have been nice things done with students in terms of planning when and where are you going to um, act in particular ways and linking this to, so there's a, a particularly powerful version, which is called mental contrasting with implementation intentions, which is getting people to think about, well, like, what would you like? What are the barriers? Now let's come up with an implementation intention to overcome those barriers. And so this is something that's been tried with students. And we find like students, are, it helps students to plan their time more effectively, spend more time studying and to achieve better results. Mm, that's cool. I like that. It reminds me of this thing that Tony Robbins does, which he gets you to like close your eyes and imagine yourself five years in the future if you haven't done this thing and you're like looking at yourself in the mirror and you look old and haggard and you're like looking at this thing that you haven't achieved and then you just get really emotional about the fact that you haven't achieved it and he brings you back to the present he's like okay so what do you actually have to do to avoid that uh, that's really so that's really cool all right so we've simplified we've inspired and motivated we've planned the next thing is to initiate action. So some of the things we can do there um, that have been spoken out about in previous podcasts is just things like breaking it down, making the first step really clear and things like that. One of the things you talked about as well is the idea of revisiting past successes as a way to kind of get students starting on a task. So, so in what ways can we get students to revisit past successes? So you, you could do it 
like descriptively, verbally, and ask them to think back to, you know, what did you achieve? Oh, you worked nonstop for 10 minutes yesterday, or you did something just like this last lesson as a way of convincing them, or just as powerful, maybe more powerful as just like literally like, okay, this is the task we did yesterday. If you've got students who are incredibly reluctant to start, like this, uh, or you wouldn't say it to them, but like give them a task that's like way too easy, like that you know everyone in, in the class could do a year ago. And clearly there's obvious, loads of obvious disadvantages to this. If the problem is that they're not interested, that's not going to overcome it. But if there's a problem of confidence and them feeling unable to start, give them something so easy they can definitely do it and then say, okay, you can do it. Well, here's the next question. Here's the next question. Likewise, if they're going to study, if you think they're going to like start their homework and kind of lose it a little bit, uh, like maybe the first homework question should be a question that you've literally done in in class and you've changed the numbers or whatever. And that way, again, they're going to like start. Oh, I know this. I can do this get that boost and then keep going and then obviously having made it really easy make it substantially harder so that they are actually benefiting from this Mm, okay kind of related to that you talked about the idea of using practice so i mean this this was interesting for me because it's kind of like how do we get students to start taking action? We use practice, and I would thought, but often practice is the thing we're trying to get them to start doing. So, could could you help me understand it a bit more? Yeah, I got some uh, some of the reviewers of of the book uh, when it was in draft were like, "This makes no sense because practice is the thing." Subsequently, so I, I I sort of tried to rewrite it and make it more coherent. So the idea here is is like collective practice before individual practice. So if you want students to do a set of sums individually instead of like if you stereotype lesson i'm going to show you what to do now you do it and instead of stereotype uh, is i'm going to show you what to do and now we're all going to practice one of them the same one and then we're going to compare our working or maybe we'll all do it on the board and then we'll do another one get faster okay now you can do it beautifully away you go so you're looking at like two three four minutes extra investment more gradual release in terms of if you're sort of control or explicitness and but then when you say go you know they can do it they know they can do it they've got that confidence they you know they've like mastered the key things and and you're away okay cool so that was that was initiate action and there's there's a bit of something something that was interesting when i was reading the book i could think that maybe some of these techniques could actually sit under other headings because a lot of them are multi-purpose is that something how did you go with that in terms of trying to order the ideas when you're writing the book so you know came up with this framework and try and move it in a logical order but yeah i i think you can do stuff in any order you like and i encourage readers to to like pick the thing that's that's the biggest barrier to what they're trying to achieve and if they think students are pretty motivated just like try and make it easier or like anytime you want people to do a thing start off by making by trying to identify barriers and take it away and take those barriers away is going to be a, a good thing and overall yeah and just like I don't want to teach grandmothers to to suck eggs and there's just loads of ideas and I hope teachers will use some of them because lots of them are quite small tweaks that I think like the implementation intentions idea like it's stuff they're doing anyway a small tweak could make an outsized difference or even just like a two percent difference but that two percent is gonna gonna add up Mm. is is there a specific way that you kind of teach these ideas in your ambition institute program and get people to 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 practice them or embed them or kind of develop conditional knowledge of when it's appropriate to use them or not Uh, i'd love to hear about that yeah so teach the the principles and and sort of go through bits of research evidence concrete examples from from classrooms for how you might do it and then we do, we do a day on it so we do like introduce it all and then i have some worked examples so okay like which techniques do you see being used in these text worked examples and then well okay here's 
here are some problems or take your own problem, sit as a group and think about these different techniques and pick some things that you might try. And then what we do all through the program is, is a weekly call. And so with each module, there's something you bring to the call that you're working on. So you get the, the group's feedback and support to go away and do something slightly better with it next week. And so during this module, it's like, just bring a thing that you're trying to get people to do and talk to each other about ways of doing it more effectively. So, you know, people people will, will turn up on their calls with like, oh, you know, I'm trying to get all the teachers to peer observe each other. And then they'll maybe break it down to them. Okay, like, how easy is it for them to find the time? Have they made a commitment for when they're going to do it? Do they really see the value of doing this? And then the, the participants in the program, the fellows will go away and try one or two of those things the next week and quite often come back and like, well, I tried that. And now I realize the problem is different from what I thought it was. But sometimes come back, I had someone a couple of years ago be like, ah, now like actually all our year 11 students are doing all their revision. You're like, yes, great. Okay. I mean, like not literally, uh, but, but, you know, we've massively improved those numbers. Cool. Can you remember what the thing that I did was so I can get on my... Um, it was to do with making concrete plans and bringing in parents to, to like sort of see, to, to, to like hold the students accountable for those plans. Mm. Tell us more about that. So when you look at evidence, the like research around parental contributions to education like we know parents are really important we know that almost all parents really want to help and often the gap is like they don't know how to help particularly when students are reaching secondary teenagehood like the student wants the parent less involved in their life the parent may feel less academically able as the subjects get more difficult maybe things they haven't studied they there's less communication like in primary maybe the the parent is going and picking up the child every day and talking to the teacher and in secondary maybe they're not picking up the kid at all and so they never talk to the teachers except at parents evening and so one of the key things seems to be like making sure that teachers have really clear information about what the student's doing what's expected and how the the parent can help and there have been some really cool studies done in in the uk trying to look at um like what happens if we provide parents just with a bit more information about like, and they're using text messages of like, okay, your child has a test next week and you can potentially give like non-specialist prompts. So even if it's like an A-level physics test, be like, ask them if they've revised or like ask a check that they check that they've set aside time to revise that kind of thing um and so in, t in terms of this this homework idea it's it's saying well okay you can, you can picture the parent like oh have you got any homework and the kid's like oh no i've done did it all at school all right you know off you go out to play and so making sure that there's a really clear like knowledge of the parents like you know your your child is going to have this much homework they're committing to do it immediately after tea or you know like whatever time you could test them on their spellings or whatever it is, or just ask them to talk you through it, that kind of stuff. So helping, empowering parents to better support and challenge students without without having to like ask parents to jump through hoops and without having to try and teach parents like the A-level physics syllabus or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess you could even do something like provide a homework schedule. I'm just thinking if, if it's related to textbook, it's like, this chapter, the questions from this chapter, which are on page this, is going to be due on this date. And so if they, so, they can literally say, have you done the question on page 372 um, or something like that? That's Show me. Yeah, show me. Just show me the writing and that'll be, you know, better than, better than nothing. Cool. So we've gone through Simplify. 
inspire, motivate, plan, initiate action, the final step. And I think the step that if I, if I reflect upon my own teaching, the step that I often fall down the most at, especially what, because each month I talk to someone else about it, inspiring new ideas in teaching and learning, and then I go off and do, do something new rather than just embedding the practice, is um, the idea of following up. There's a lot of things to talk about in terms of following up, but one of the ones that you started with was trying to help address the issue if, if students don't see the value of continuing, continuing in action. You know, you might get them to do implementation intentions and they might do their homework for three weeks, but they're like, this is more effort than not doing my homework. I don't want to make a plan or, or you know, it might just kind of the, the impacts of that might fade away or something like that. So what are some of the things we can do here? Maybe we, we can start with the idea of tracking student progress. Yeah, so here, the idea that we talked about maybe an hour ago now about specs being really specific kicks back in, right? If we have a really clear, probably quantitative measure of how many students are doing X or how far students are getting with Y, it becomes really easy for us to A, see what's going on, B, work out whether our plans are working, whether we need to tweak them, C, feed that back to students possibly being able then to provide an encouraging message to them as individuals, look how much more you're doing, possibly being able to reinforce some of the messages about social norms. It's like it used to be that only half of the class were doing such and such, and now three quarters of you are doing it. Um, so tracking is really powerful. The issue here, I think, is is like all teachers, like it's so obvious. Teachers are like, I'm constantly looking at what's going on in the classroom. What have you got to tell me here? And I think this is where the specificity becomes really powerful. We can say, well, instead of just think about the number of times you wander around the classroom, just looking at students' work, oh, that's interesting, that's nice, don't do it like this, do do it like that. If we have a really clear goal, then we can track in a much more active way. Say, well, okay, the thing that I really care about for today's lesson is, are students writing a coherent opening sentence to a paragraph? Are they balancing, are they um, checking whether fractions are equivalent before trying to do something with, with them? And so you can go around 30 students much more quickly okay, three quarters of students have got it, but a quarter of them haven't. And now I can do something to support that quarter immediately, like three minutes into the lesson without having to wait and mark their books and realize, you know, like screwed up all these sums or whatever it is. So yeah, the idea here is, is just like pick a particular goal, track, and then use that information to adapt what you do. And so rather there's a great Doug Lemov blog post a few years ago about the difference between hunting and fishing. Don't just sort of cast your net and see what you get. Actively have a plan, actively have a target, go out and see what's happening. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Hunting, not fishing. I think he also talks about tracking, not watching. Yeah. It's kind of an analogy of that. This was an interesting part of the book for me because one of the things, you know, I had Jim Knight on to talk about coaching a couple of months ago as well. One of the things with the idea of coaching is setting, again, to come back to your idea of specific, really specific goals. So it's not like I want to improve students' focus. It's like, how do we actually measure that? How do we actually tie that down, quantify it today and see if we're actually improving? So I would be interested to talk about tracking some other things. You talked about things like tracking focus, tracking perseverance, tracking contributions. What are some ways that teachers can actually, you know, track students' progress on those kind of more amorphous ideas? So I had to cut this out of the book because loads of the reviewers were like, I don't get it. But there was a really cool line that I took from a book from outside of education which said like, if you can't take a photograph of your goal happening, it probably it's like it's not very useful it probably doesn't exist uh, and so whatever the thing that you want what is the thing that you are going to picture and see happening so if you want students to collaborate 
I don't know what that means, right? Okay, so I want to see students exchanging ideas. And so you're going to be going around, and this is, this is a hard one to track, but you're going to be going around and saying, like, how often do you see students actually, like, discussing, oh, here's a thing that you could do. Here's a thing that I tried that, that you could do. And counting that up rather than our students just sitting at a table together talking. And um, if you want students focusing it's like how many students are working independently or how long can the individual or the group work without being interrupted. If you want to check whether students are persevering, it's like how fast do students get on a difficult task? Can they answer question one independently, question two, whatever. If you want students to be contributing, it's like how many students contribute to the discussion during the lesson. And what all of these things have in common is, is that they can be made quantitative. And there's clear, like I'm just kind of partially by background, a qualitative researcher, there's loads of things wrong with trying to quantify everything. Um, but when you make it quantitative, you really simplify what you're taking in and you allow yourself to see like, okay, well, I've totted up and only half of the class have contributed during discussion. I need to change the context in some way because I'm not getting what I want. And so that measure is really powerful for you. And that measure is also powerful for students because you can say, I've heard from half the class and I'd like to hear from five different people before we move on, mm. for example. Okay. Well, one of the things that's I think that's great. It makes so much more se so much sense, and I'm I'm sad that that idea about the taking a po taking a picture didn't make it into the book, Harry, because I think that's a great idea. Blame the reviewers. <laughs> it, it remains a great idea, uh, and Oliver Oliver Cavalioli has a has a similar thing. Is like he he because he, he you know he's. Uh, a lot of his stuff is to do with turning things into graphics. And so his thing will be like, tell me a thing that I can draw. And when people say, well, okay, um, a sense of liaises with someone. So like, what should I draw? Like, oh, you should draw that they're putting a note in their pigeonhole or, or whatever it is. That's good. And that relates to when I asked you before, what are some tips about getting people to make, yeah. get specific? That's a powerful one. What, what can I draw? And even better, what can I draw without the skills that Oliver has with stupid looking stick figures? Um, even though he off, he does use very simplified drawings on purpose. Um, but yeah, if I can draw with stupid stick figures and still convey the idea, then, then we've got a pretty clear picture of what's going on. Love that. One of the challenges of tracking these, these things, you know, we talk, we can talk about, in the self-regulation world, we talk about online monitoring and offline monitoring. Online monitoring is monitoring during the actual task and offline is like before or after. One of the challenges of online monitoring is that, as you were talking about yourself, it takes up cognitive space. So if a teacher is actually teaching a lesson, trying to deliver something new or trying to support students to collaborate in different groups and going around giving advice, counting the number of interactions or something like that can be quite a, just too much, essentially. Do, do you have any ideas of how to, how to get around that challenge? So again, this is where simplifying it down makes your life a lot easier, right? So if you say like, I am going to monitor this one thing, and clearly you're taking the odd other thing, but like I am closing my mind because I have prioritized wholeheartedly and I really believe that student perseverance is the number one thing that I have to work on today. That is what I'm going to track for. That's what's going to go on. My and you know, you, you, you can play tunes with it. So maybe you're like totting up like how far each student has got on a little bit of paper and also noting down like, oh, you know, Franco had a great thing and we'll, we'll uh, ask him to, to contribute next, that kind of stuff. You can do that. But yeah, it's just where, where specificity comes back to bite. If you haven't been specific, it's impossible. If you are specific, you say, well, okay. And again, this is where like habits and routines for a teacher are really powerful. Like if you're having to think, if you think back to, to being a new teacher, if you're having to plan out where I'm going to stand, what I'm going to do, what's happening next, you clearly don't have cognitive space to monitor everything else as well. If you have a routine for what's going to happen next and where the papers are and what students need to do if they're stuck. You've then got more cognitive space to monitor like, well, okay, what's the quality of their work or the quality of their interactions? Yeah, that makes sense. I, th I think also another thing is 
often it's not as easy to identify how many contributions there were, but once you've kind of chunked and automated the names of the students in your class, it can be easy to remember who contributed in that session. So that's another way to track it. You know, if you had 80% of people who actually did something in line with it, um, that could work as well. Or get students to do it, get students to write it down or, you know, people talk, I mean, this is not something I've ever done, but people talk about like uh, give every student a token and they have to put in their token when they speak. And again, who's got a token left? I mean, we've got 15 tokens in and, and that, that kind of thing. So yeah, you know, potentially you outsource it. Mm, totally. Yeah, cool. I guess one of the things to keep in mind there is that we're not asking them to do something that's cognitive demand, cognitively demanding and taking their cognitive resource away from the learning yeah. activity, which yeah. which I think I've done and made the mistake of in the past as well. So something to balance there. Another idea in terms of following up and, and helping students to see the value of continuing um, was highlighting intrinsic rewards. What are some of the intrinsic rewards that you'd highlight and how would you do that, Harry? So partly it's students' own choice, but I think the, you know, the intrinsic reward of learning is like being smarter, understanding things in new ways, being able to contribute, mastering new skills, whatever it is. I think, again, almost the most powerful thing we can do, maybe the only powerful, like it's happening anyway, assuming students are getting better and assuming we've got the preceding steps right. But it's making sure that students pause and recognize that it's happening and recognizing that it's happening due to their agency. And I think it's very easy to like get to the end of the day. Like, you know, we just expect students to do stuff. So we don't necessarily pause and celebrate it enough. We're tired. We're just trying to like pack everything up. So just taking that time to say, well, okay, two minutes, what have you done today that you're proud of? Two minutes, write down what's a thing that you understand now and how could it be useful somewhere else? And this is some really cool work by Judith Herakievitz in the States around like, okay, what happens if we just put a prompt at the end of a test saying like, oh, you know, where, she has a nice study looking at science and like, where else could you, how could this, um, what you've learned in this unit be useful to you? And she shows that students who write an answer to that, like read this and have the choice to write an answer to it, achieve better subsequently and are more motivated in science. So it's just little things making space for students to recognize like, what have you done? What have you done to make that possible? Why is that a good thing? And helping them to see the progress that they're making, because it's just so easy to be on just flailing along and every day there's a new topic and life's really difficult. Like, well, let's stop and recognize that you're making progress. Yeah. That's a, um, that's a cool prompt. I like that. And, uh, I'll have to check out some of that research. It sounds really interesting. The the final idea I want to talk about in terms of following up and helping students to see the value or, or kind of helping them to to buy into this this project a bit more long term, I guess is a, is a way to think about it, is is building belonging. And I, I must say, I was very glad when I came across this section of the book because I was like, you know, this a lot of there's that kind of age old adage which is they don't care what you know till they know that they that you care kind of a thing and whether you believe whether whether people find that irksome or not i think there is a lot of truth in the the role of relationships it's actually interesting so something that happens at the school that i'm at at the moment is at the start of the year the the principal shows up the faces of teachers whose year 12 class have done particularly well and acknowledges them and also says to the other teachers in the school, uh, I encourage you to go and talk to these teachers and ask them what they did that, you know, that, that's helped them to achieve what they have with their students. And so, I've, you know, I'm pretty new to the school and I was like, this is a great opportunity to, to, to meet people and ask, ask some questions, get a sense of, of the students at the school as well. I got a variety of answers, but one of the people said, I, I said, what did you do that helped you achieve? And he said, I let the boys know, it's an all-boys school, I let the boys know that they matter to me as much as my own children. 
and they will go to the end of the earth for me. <laughs> and like, like that's pretty powerful. And I subsequently got to know this guy more and I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's like that build belonging idea is basically the core of his teaching pedagogy and he gets fantastic results. Short of that, <laughs> what can we do to kind of build connections between, between students and teachers? This is a really interesting question. I want, I want to divert slightly first to talk about why, right? Because part of one of my frustrations in teach development and in teaching more generally is when we sort of assume that certain things are an aspect of a teacher's personality. And some teachers are just born teachers and kids will go to the end of the earth for them and they will always achieve great results and the kids will always learn. That. But like most of us aren't these paragons of virtue. And so a lot of so bits, some stuff in the book is like potentially obvious because I'm trying to codify stuff that is really important that we don't all necessarily understand that what some of these people do brilliantly. And so I think the the interesting thing about what you've described there is it sounds amazing, but I don't personally know if I could pull it off. And I think most teachers probably couldn't, right? Because it's, just, it's like a being you thing of like, you're just the best person ever. Um, and most schools have like one or two of those people, but but we're not all going to hit that. Um, so it's which, which is why I'm going to draw on the evidence rather than just be like, be, be as great as, as this, this person sounds. So I think three things that came out of my reading of the literature, much of the literature or some of the literature that I read wasn't from education, which is, is interesting in itself. Probably the single most powerful idea to me is this idea of highlighting and talking about similarities. And there's pretty robust evidence that where people look at are asked to find what they have in common, whether that's teachers and students or groups of students, they come to see each other, like to trust each other better and to see each other as, as more of a team and, and more of a group. And it's something that I feel a little bit uncomfortable around now in some ways, like the sort of the discourses of how we differ within society at the moment, risk militating against that. And if we focus constantly and clearly like, you know, different groups of people have really different uh, like elements of their lives and lived experiences and culture and religion, you know, everything else. But if we want to build communities we need to acknowledge that we need to like act around it where where action is needed but we also need to look at what we have in common there was a, a british mp joe cox who was murdered a few years ago and her very powerful speech uh, emphasized this idea of like we have more in common between us than what divides us and i think that idea is crucial and so anytime you can just say like hey if you've got a new class of students put them in small groups find what like how, how many different things can you find you have in common? Prize for the group that comes up with like the most wacky thing that you all have in common. That's the kind of thing that's like, it's like an icebreaker, but it's an icebreaker that starts to build community. Slower burn, but longer lasting thing is just thinking about the language that we use. When I'm working with a group who I really love and I've worked with for a while, I noticed that I talk about we. So like we've done that, not, not you've done this, or I've told you we've done this. And I think anytime you can use that kind of language, and again, there's, there's been cool studies done looking at like the use of more inclusive language to describe an institution makes people buy into that institution more and work harder as a result. So if you want to describe like, what is the culture of our maths department? Like, great, we're like hard charging and uh, exceptional and excellent, but also like we're supportive and kind and so on. And, and just use of that kind of language changes how people think about things. The last thing, and I raise this with slight reluctance, owing to being British, but but like this idea of ritual. And I read an amazing, one of the best articles I read a couple of years ago um, was about this uh, ritual in reoffending. So it's talking about how if you commit a crime, uh, there is a huge ritualized process that we go through, of like arrest, what happens to you, courtroom, going to prison and so on. But when you come out from prison, there is like no ritual 
and potentially a series of rituals would push against reoffending. So, like, what is the ritual whereby you are like included back in the community? What is the ritual whereby you make promises to do stuff better, and the community makes promises to like help you to do that? I found a really cool website from I think it was a school in Queensland called Silkwood that talked explicitly about like this is the ritual. We have different rituals at different stages in students' journey, and they're like this is the ritual that shows the end of primary school and and shows that you're ready to move on to secondary school and likewise if you're going to uh, if you go to schools in japan there's like there is a ritual thing and and there's specific things that are said around like this is the season of such and such you know the, the flowers are coming out and it's time for you to move on to junior high school or whatever it is we do rituals at the end like graduation but we don't do a lot before then and it's really easy to do it like awkwardly and artificially and just rub people up the wrong way but I think there's probably something around like, okay, what is the ritual of of like, what's the ritual where a student who's like said something awful in class comes back into class? And I mean, just like they shuffle in the back, either like sort of pretending they're going to be better or really sullenly or whatever it is. Like, what is the ritual where you as a class do something that that takes account of what's happened and takes you in a new direction? Mm, that's really interesting. The the thing that's coming to mind at the end of what you're talking about there is is what they do at Michaela with their ritualized kind of gratitude from what I'm aware from what I've heard just like standing up at the end of the lesson or something and saying what you're grateful for that other students have done I think that's incredibly powerful and another thing is the idea of linking the idea of ritual to the idea of habit I guess a a ritual is kind of like a cultural habit in some ways that you reinforce year after year and it serves a purpose to embed something in a way that you know just good intentions alone wouldn't necessarily make do you have any thoughts on that or comments on that yeah, I mean, I think rituals are powerful when we weave them into our the structure of things. Like a one-off ritual is much less powerful than an ongoing ritual. Uh, it makes me think of Japanese schools again. And at the beginning of every lesson, the teacher and the students bow to each other and they say something that sort of translates like, uh, like, please teach me stuff. And the teacher says that too. Now, okay, you know, like all rituals become empty once you've done, done them like a thousand times in, in a sense, but there's something powerful in that. So it's, yeah, the, you know, the question is when can we build rituals into the, the fabric of the school that reinforce our values? And I think it's really easy not to do that because we're reticent about like being too cult-like because we're in a hurry to get to the next lesson because school life is just chaotic. But I think when we build build those rituals and those reminders of our purpose, um, and yeah, so like, you know, picking what are the, you can work through the same sort of thing of like, okay, if your school values are inclusion or your school value is collaboration or your school value is achievement, like what is the thing every day that reminds students of that? I think religious schools do this a lot better and some of the literature around sort of so the classic McLaughlin and, and Talbot book on trust in schools said it's the mission oriented schools, which Michaela would be one where like everyone's there for a reason. And the religious schools that have really high trust, because whether I went and spent a day in a Catholic school following a Jewish teacher round and she was like, no, I love it. It's great because and, you know, they started start the day with a prayer. Now, that was really I have only taught in, in like avowedly secular schools. I was like, whoa, what's going on? But actually, you realize like there's there's something in this in this reminder of like who we are and what we're doing that that religion gets right and secularism struggles with and i say that as as, a, as like a secularist but there's, there's there's something in it yeah totally a couple of things on that final point you said there alain de botton wrote an awesome book called religion for atheists which if people haven't read that really got me thinking about what we lose in society when we lose religion really powerful the other thing you know relating that 
ritual as an instantiation of the values of the school kind of an idea. It relates back to what you were saying before when we were talking about specify, when you were like, if this is really your number one priority, you know, how does every bit of your lesson actually relate to that? And how is it proving that that's your number one priority? And in the same way, how are the things you do in your school every single day, the rituals that you do, an example, an instantiation of the things you're trying to create um, longer term? So I think that's that's really, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's really valuable to think, you know, and it's, it's kind of the same thing in your life, like to circle back to habits. If these are the most important things, you know, what efforts are you putting in to establish a habit that helps you to move towards that long-term goal, that disposition you're trying to develop or whatever it may do, or that relationship. I think rituals in relationships are incredibly crucial, um, rituals of gratitude and things like that to to constantly crank up that 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 love ratchet or whatever you might want to call it if it's a romantic re- relationship in the, over the long term there's a really nice line from a guy I follow on twitter called visa who who has this thing of like do the things that you want to see more of stop complaining just do do the things that you want to see more of and yeah so if you want a school that is more kind or academic or whatever it is like just find the stop making excuses find the space and do it and do it as a habit and you'll probably get a bit nearer to being in the kind of space that you want to be in Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Harry stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the EWR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to some specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot in the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary is a particularly valuable one to have at your fingertips because there are just so many challenges within schools that can be addressed with Harry's Simplify model. Whether we're trying to encourage students to do homework working to change the culture in our classrooms, inspiring teachers to get better, or addressing any manner of other motivational projects, the Simplify model has practical advice. And this month's summary provides an easy reference way to find all of the practical suggestions from this podcast when you need them. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the EWR podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERR and sign up for as little as $1 per month, or the average donation of $5 US per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Harry Fletcherwood. Coming back to that thing about finding similarities, I've got a I've got an example and a non-example. Um, one of the things, this year, I'm a bit of a mountain biker and I've got this one student who I was struggling with a lot in, in one of my classes, he was just pretty disengaged, didn't didn't feel motivated about his maths and stuff. And I one day I let drop that I was into mountain biking because I knew he was as well. And suddenly there was this connection and it was amazing. Like he just kind of got interested in me as a person rather than just this strange enemy teacher kind of person. And then this, other, this thing happened the other week, you know, in lockdown, we can't go that far. And there's a local park where some of the uh, local kids had built a jump, like a mountain bike jump. And I'd been revisiting it and going, oh, I really want to do that, but it's a bit big for me. 
and, and there was a little one that I'd been doing. And I went down this day and this student was there and he was doing the jump. And I was like, oh, name, would you tow me over the jump? Which means they basically go in front to show you the speed you should be going when you go over the jump because hitting the right speed is really important. Otherwise, you undershoot and you fall in a hole or you overshoot and you hurt yourself a lot. Um, and he's like, sure. And so he towed me over the jump and I got someone to video it and like I sent him the video or whatever. And it's just like he's been absolutely gold for me ever since. So, yeah, really, it just shows that that kind of something in common can work. Uh, the non, a non-example is I've put students in, I've, I've moved them around a lot over this year to try to help help them work more effectively. And one of the combos did not work that well. You know, when they found they were working together, one of the boys threw his computer halfway across the room, <laughs> which was interesting. And something I did, I was like, oh, yeah, what, what should I do? I should help them find something in common. And the next lesson I said, gents, it seems like, bit more of a sense of something like feels like a bit more of a sense of camaraderie at this table would be valuable what i'd love for you to do i'd said everyone else on the wall i'd love for you to both just go and do a lap around around the yard and i want you to come back i want you to find three things in common and come back and tell me what they are and they went and they went came back and they were like oh yeah we both like pizza we like computer games and we're like whatever and you know they tolerated each other for a few lessons but after a while i was like okay i have to change this and so i eventually changed it but it would just i guess it shows it doesn't doesn't always work but maybe maybe it made a small impact i mean it sounds like it did more it sounds like an improvement i love the mountain biking idea the thing that it reminds me of is a cool study the title of which was something like birds birds of a feather and they did something like they they like did a, a ask a series of questions around like how many children do you uh, how many siblings do you have what do you like doing asking both the students and the teachers and then they like highlighted to I think I think it was to the teachers like where they had things in common and it seemed to improve relationships particularly it's in America again for African American students between African American students and the teachers and those kids then got better grades as a result because because you know the risk is like what so like now next year does someone teaching the same student have to like learn mountain biking and you can't like morph yourself around all these things so like where these similarities exist I think you can highlight them. I think we can find a lot of things which are similar in terms of stuff like sibling and family relationships, where like, you know, you're, you're either an only child, or you've got an annoying brother or a big sister or whatever it is. Um, so that is something that we can say we have in common with students and just, yeah, like looking for these little things and just underlining them where, exist, where they exist. And I think the little things can go some way, mm. but not, as you say, the whole way. Yeah. Great. Something something I was keen to ask you about, Harry, is is the idea of sanctions. Because often when, when it comes to motivating students, the most simple thing is the carrot and the stick, right? And the stick's obviously a, a, a lot easier and a lot more reactionary and often a lot simpler. It's like, oh, yeah, three strikes, detention, whatever it might be, staying at lunch. What have you learned over the years about where and when to use sanctions or rewards and punishments, you know, the limitations of them? I'd love some of your insights. Yeah, so I've long, long believed that punishment is mostly a waste of time, apart from two things. That like the idea that sending a child to detention is gonna make anything better is like generally not the case. I think the most important reason for that is that detention rarely leads to change and improvement. So often detention is just like sitting there complaining. And I think if you ask students to do something in that time around like a structured reflection, uh, just to kind of um, to have an example in, in the book taken from Laura McInerney around a like, okay, what have you done? Why is that a problem? What are you going to do next? And getting them to, to like write their thinking down and forcing them to confront their actions and be honest and like respond to that in an appropriate way can be powerful and works for some students. 
Um, and I think the other reasons why punishments, even if you think it's not going to do anything for a student, you have to do it is because it enforces the, the social norm. And that is like, if you say like, oh, so-and-so has done something, but we're going to let them off because punishment is a waste of time. Or we're going to let them off because they have a difficult life. You're communicating to the rest of the class that like standards and expectations are optional. And that is uh, a good route to the breakdown of society, I think. Um, so sanctions, well, we might talk more about like habit change and stopping bad habits later. Like sanctions probably don't break ha- bad habits, but they're worth doing if a student is in bad habits. They can help with reflection. In terms of rewards, I think, again, this is something that we, we talk a lot about, like the importance of consistency in school. And that's right in most things. So like it is important for you to be consistent and not be like grumpy teacher one day and friendly teacher the other because the kids have got no idea how to respond to you. But I don't think that uh, works so well f- for rewards because you like the reward comes in and it's like, oh, I'm going to reward you for doing your homework or for like working really hard today. And then next lesson is like, well, I work really hard if I can have a you know, merit or whatever it is your, your school gives out. And then three lessons time they you know, well, I'm only, only going to do it for two merits or whatever. And the evidence seems pretty clear that that a specific, but uh, an unexpected reward is more powerful than an expected reward. So that was brilliant. And as a one-off, I'm going to give you this. And it's like a, a pleasant surprise. And also that they should be for a specific thing so that students know what they've done well and what you want to see more of. So just saying like, you've worked really hard all lesson, not sure. It's like, you've just done seven minutes of the most focused work I've ever seen you do. So have a merit or whatever it is. Uh, in terms of what a reward should be, it's, it doesn't seem to matter as long as students like it. Like the, the crucial thing is how and when you're offering the reward and, and the messages you're communicating through that. I guess the other thing I'd say is like, I am so against rewards and reading the evidence around them forced me to like change my beliefs like i just i just always believed it's like this is ridiculous because kids like learning is good and you shouldn't devalue learning you shouldn't undermine their intrinsic motivation but the evidence seems pretty unambiguous like it doesn't really seem to undermine intrinsic motivation hugely and it does help people to form habits by helping them to repeat behaviors until they they become uh more fixed Mm. yeah i guess another way to think think, see rewards as well is like a bridge between like immediate and delayed gratification maybe so like you know when you're trying to get fit the first month is a challenge because it hurts every time you run but once you get over that you start to get the endorphins and it's like well this is actually just intrinsically rewarding experience i actually think this is we didn't really talk about it in the in the motivation section but probably the biggest barrier to education and indeed to doing anything good in life is is this gap between the the effort and reward and so yeah like at least at the end of the run you feel pretty good with the endorphins but sometimes you just have to like study 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 and you're only like it's only all going to make sense once you've actually done the studying you're only going to see the rewards in like two years five years and you know to to, to a student you say like oh you're going to struggle in the exam well the exam's next year and i mostly care about like you know my social interactions with my friends and what's going to happen after school um and so anytime we can make things feel more immediate so i suggest in the book that like an immediate sanction that's really light touch is a lot more use than a sanction at the end of the week that's much more so so far better to say like if you do that again you're gonna have to stay in with me for three minutes uh, over break time then if you do that again you're gonna have to stay in for like an hour on friday because friday is is another lifetime i see this a lot with my son right so my son is three and like all children it's both good and bad uh, at different times like I, he's you know, even now he's three, but even before then, there's no point in reasoning this. You know, like you should do this because it'll make you a better person. Like, I don't care. I'm just like I'm a three-year-old. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Um, we're saying like there is going to be an immediate consequence, which is like I'm going to you know pay you 
put your back in your room and you won't be able to do X, he can see the value in that straight away. That's clearly like not something I want to do forever because I'd like him to become like a sort of self-authoring person who's just good, but he's a three-year-old. So, uh, you know, for, for the time being, the immediate is going to trump the like, oh, you know, it will be worth this because in 20 years time, we'll still have a really good relationship. Mm, 100%. I think it's... Um... I think it's also valuable from the teacher's point of view because it's like you set a detention that you're supervising yourself and it's like three days later and you go like, oh, I cannot be bothered supervising this detention. But it's, uh-huh. I, it's like I'll give up three minutes of my lunch now because I I just want to deal with this right now and it's still visceral to me what happened in the classroom. So that makes sense too. One of the, thing, one of the interesting things you talked about there was using – sanctions to reinforce social norms, I think is something that isn't explicitly talked about enough. And it's definitely not something that I've thought about as much as I could have. I mean, the, the medieval example is like the, the head on the pike outside the village or something like that, right? But hopefully we don't have to be quite that graphic. But something something I have been doing this year is I was having issues with my, my older students just using their phones just too much in classroom, just getting them out and be like, oh, I just had to do this, sir. I just had to text my mum or whatever it might be. And um, just developed a spreadsheet which you know has their names and then has you know first thing it's just like warning second thing's like take to the end of lesson third thing take to the end of day fourth thing take to the end of the day and call parents or whatever and I just make sure I have that easily accessible and whenever I see one I just I just stop whatever I'm doing and I just bring that up on the projector because I'm projecting already on my computer I'm like okay that's level three for you Luke and just x and then back don't make a big deal of it but it's amazing the impact that that's had because they're all like oh wow sir's being super consistent about this and like everyone's gonna see me and you know (laughs) Yeah, that I hadn't thought about the fact that I was just doing that because it was kind of convenient, right? But I hadn't thought about the way that that actually enforces that social norm that I'm trying to create. And it's complicated, right? Because you don't want to be humiliating the individual student, you know, and like we don't want to do a medieval like, well, so-and-so is going to sit on a pillory and we're all going to throw rotten um, rotten fruit at them until they say they're sorry. And I th- so I think it can be quite like, it can be done quite subtly. Like all you, all you need to say is like, and say, say, say that kid like said something rude to another student. You can just say like, uh, the student who said something rude is going to be staying in with me at break to discuss that. Let's go. So they like, everyone just needs to know there's a consequence. You don't need to know that like, oh, no, I'm going to be bringing their parents and ruining the rest of their day but yeah you're, you're just trying to convey like this is not okay and this is not who we are because if you don't then who we are remains up for grabs mm. yeah i like that great quote let's do three specific case studies we've already talked about them a little bit the first one is the age-old challenge and probably the one of the biggest challenges the teachers face in terms of instructional challenges and that's kind of getting students to do homework so you talked a little bit about implementation intentions before maybe you could recap that and because you know we forget things and is there anything else teachers can or should do cool so if we think about this the simplify thing specify is pretty clear but like are we have we got a really concrete homework do students know exactly what it is we might come back to that in a second inspire and motivate might try and do a sort of problem solution of like, okay, you know, what, like the consequence of not knowing the homework. So I did, I did this, I sort of went out to, to people for suggestions on what they did that might fit into the book and I had somebody said, well, you know, I do a test on the homework the day that the homework is due in and that's a way of making really concrete its its value. Social norms potentially really powerful. I think often the social norm is, is hidden. So like students are working harder than they want to admit to, uh, at least in some of the, the schools I've worked in. Um, so I kind of, well, actually, you know, most people are getting their thing, their homework in. So conveying that, like, you know, be, be one with the rest of the group. 
um, yeah, we talked about implementation intentions to so making sure students have got a really concrete plan for when and where they're going to do it and uh, bringing in parents or supporters saying, so, you know, potentially their older students, potentially they can get their phones out in your lesson, just text text their parents and say, well, this, this is what I got to do and when, this is when I'm going to do it. Um, in terms of making it easy, we talked a bit about this idea of, you know, make maybe make the first homework question something that's uh, they've already done in the lesson. Maybe make all the homework questions stuff that they can do quite easily that's sort of revision and recap and, and retrieval. Also talked a little bit in the book about the idea of defaults. So I think it's very easy to get kind of stuck, stymied, like, I don't know where to start. So So just having a kind of like, okay, if you get stuck, here are three things you can do. If you get stuck, here's an alternative thing that you can do to make sure you do an hour studying, even if it's not on this task. If you get stuck, here's here's like the first three, like look back in your book, do this, do that. And then yeah, following up. So tracking, tracking how many homeworks are coming in, feeding that back to students, potentially sanctioning those who haven't done it, or just make sure they, they do it in, like after the lesson or whatever it is. And what else have I got? Yeah, that, and, and yeah, so then try and tap into the intrinsic reward as well. It's like, okay, what do you now understand as a result of doing this? Uh, and if I threw a combination of, of those things at it, I, I could, I reckon, you know, I could probably, and I had, had people who used some of these ideas in their schools and found they substantially increased the number of students doing homework just for a handful, yeah, handful of techniques. Next, next kind of case study is, or scenario, I guess is probably a better way to put it, is getting students to kind of take ownership of their own learning. And this is, this is something I've seen, you know, you would do a quiz, you get students to do a quiz or a test or something, you will write feedback or you'll mark it, you give it back to them, they look at the mark, and then it's like, it's finished for them. And this is, you know, fair enough if that's like the last test on the unit and they're not going to see it for a year, like that's a rational decision for them, I would say. But, you know, this might even be a mini quiz on the way to a large, you know, highest assessment where it actually matters, but they just kind of don't take control. They don't, for some reason, see it as something they should be doing. What advice do you have for this, Harry? Yeah. So my my first advice is going to be like, let's be much more specific. So if I tell students to take ownership of their learning and say like, what does a picture of that look like? We don't know, right? So, so coming up with a really clear thing, and I think this is a great example of where coming up with a habit, not an isolated action is going to be really, really helpful. So it's going to be looking at their, well, like whenever you get feedback or um, marks on a quiz and it's what the, the best thing to do is going to vary depending on what kind of subject you're teaching so potentially in maths in 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 like a, a sort of uh, subject like history or english it might be around like right rewriting one of the paragraphs paragraph that you think is weakest based on the feedback that you've had or the reteaching that i've done in maths it might be like picking up particular uh, problems and trying to do them again um but a habit of like always use it you're going to clearly then have to inspire and motivate them to to do that and potentially a kind of problem solution of like you know do you want to go through this all over again i don't think you do planning i wouldn't even i'd, I'd want them to do, be doing it straight away or maybe it's their next homework i don't know i think there's a lot there about then making it easy setting defaults and potentially practicing as said to make sure students are really on top of what you want them to do and then tracking and just making like absolutely sure that they're doing it uh, and and enforcing that and hopefully this this is where like the habit idea i think becomes powerful right like you're they are they're forming a habit of like habit in the kind of mechanical sense of like always like doing something with their feedback but they're also forming hopefully a habit of like learning from their feedback and and um becoming smarter as a result Mm. 
Great. Yeah, it's uh, it's really nice to do these kind of scenarios because hearing you come back to those key points of specifying things like that, for me, it's really helping it to sink in for me. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Really need to be specific. <laughs> Don't just give some students some homily about the importance of taking can, taking charge of their own learning. Yeah, tell them what that looks like and help them plan when to do it and exactly what it's going to look like. Love that. So we've talked about a lot from the teacher's perspective today. From the from the kind of leadership perspective and a leader who's thinking, you know, I really want to improve my school. I want to help teachers become better. But I'm facing this issue where like my teachers just, they seem to be happy just to come, do what they've always been doing, take the paycheck, clock off at 3.30. How do t- leaders inspire teachers to want to get better? I have a lot of sympathy with both camps on this, if we assume that they are opposing camps. The main thing that I do is spend my time helping heads of teaching and learning try and help their teachers get better. So like, I, I work with people who, who deal with this, this challenge every day. Equally, like, think about the average teacher, right? And the five, 10 years in, you have built up a set of routines that are pretty good. You've built up a set of routines and habits which help you to function because teaching is overwhelming. There's a million different things to do. You have a high degree of autonomy, even in the most controlling schools and systems, because no one can watch you all the time. You can basically do what you want within reason. And there's loads of reasons why you wouldn't want to change because anything. I turn, I'm now ahead of teaching and learning. I tell, hey, everyone, we're going to do this great new thing. And it's going to like solve all that. Well, okay, one, that's a load of extra work and I'm super busy. Two, is it really going to be better? Because I developed a set of routines that work for me as a person, for my students, for my subject. And your thing probably doesn't better those. Three, even if I want to do these things, I'm in a set of existing habits that make it hard to do that. And a number of times that I taught to teach about a thing and, and it's so often, oh yeah, I used to do that for a bit, but I, I stopped and I don't really know why. It's like, well, you know, there's, there's a really good reason. We're just like, you were really busy. You're in an existing habit. You tried it once and then you fell back into existing patterns. And that's what we all do. That's, that's fine. So what should the leader do? Be really specific about what they want. And now I, this is another one where reviewers pushed me in ways that was was somewhat reasonable around like, well, who should be, I'm saying like the goal should be specific. The goal could be set by teachers themselves. It could be like mandated by a leader or it could be done through discussion. But however, whatever process your school goes through, you need a really specific goal. So not just like getting better, but like this term, we're going to work on retrieval practice. This term, we're going to work on the quality of student writing. And when we say the quality of student writing, we want students to be able to produce like a page of high quality stuff in such and such time and to do that once a week, something like that. Here again, the, the idea of a powerful habit might might be helpful of like, okay, so what's a really small lever that's really powerful? So I think an exit ticket is one of the most powerful things you can do because it's tiny, right? Like add two minutes onto the end of whatever and, and, and just do an exit ticket. But it help, provides the teacher with really helpful data about what's going on. Uh, it forces you to confront what students are and are understanding. It helps you to plan more tightly as you try and write the exit ticket. So sorry, find something small that you want everyone to do. Um, I definitely want to do problem solution here. So like, okay, what's annoying? Like, what what are the things that you struggle with? I want to help you solve those. I might also do a bit of social norms. I may, but I probably, to be honest, I probably wouldn't if I've got the problem solution a bit right. Um, I definitely want to do the, the planning side in terms of, okay, which plan me a lesson or plan me a moment in the lesson when you're going to do this. I'm going to try it with my year nines on Wednesday at, at 3 p.m. or whatever. Um, or I'm going to pick a moment in the lesson, like I'm always going to do it after I've finished discussing the starter or whatever. Making it as easy as possible. The number of times as a teacher you get a thing where it's like you have to fill in the spreadsheet and the spreadsheet's over here and then like just just cut all of that away, make it really simple. Practice, 
you know, bang the drum for the gospel of practice. If you want people to do a thing, help them to practice it first. Otherwise, they're going to struggle. Uh, and then again, you know, track and just uh, you, you might do that as a senior leader in your lesson drop-ins with this teacher. Like, how often do you see them doing this thing? Or you can find a really light, I think we jump from that to the onerous of like share all your lesson plans and annotate them so that we know what's going on really quickly. Um, but find a, a light touch way. So, for example, if, if um you want all your teachers to be talking about misconceptions. You're like, okay, I want each department each week to send me the best misconception they came across. So it's like you're not asking for loads of effort, but you're kind of impelling people to to do the thing that you want them to do. And then hopefully teachers, you know, the, the, the will then see kind of some kind of benefit and and want to keep going as a result. Awesome, Harry, you, you so many ideas, so rapid fire. It's great. You've just done so much thinking about this. It's um, it's awesome. So the next thing I'm keen to ask about, Harry, is is how have you applied these ideas in your own life? You know, it's it's you've obviously learned so much about motivating, establishing habits, establishing routines, rituals, things like that. And you're clearly someone who values, you know, being productive, getting stuff done, making a positive contribution. I'm really curious to hear about how you have it applied in your own life. And I mean, maybe something to touch on there as well. We, we just had a quick break for those, um, for those listening. And so one of the things we talked about in that break was having, having a good sleep. So maybe that might be something you want to touch on as well, Harry. But yeah, how have you, how have you applied these ideas to your own life? So yeah, there's, there's, there's loads of ways, right? So one of them is just like, if there's something that I want to do, knowing that I need to, if it's going to happen, I just need to make a habit of it. And recognizing that like even things that I do on an isolated like even just planning things like if you want to, you need to do things regularly so i just took a holiday and that was a chance to reflect about writing and what i'm writing and what i want to be writing and so one thing i've been trying to do for on and off for like the last 5 years is write uh, the series that the world is calling for of uh, young adult fiction about the vikings because there's loads loads to be done there and there's never time because I'm always too busy like writing books about other things like teaching stuff and that, that you know, gets in the way. Um, so saying to myself, well, actually, I'm going to write, uh, so break it down, form a habit. I'm going to write a short story every week and put them online uh, and use that as a way to break down the problem into something smaller, give myself a really concrete thing that I have to do, not wait to, for the right time. This is, this is crucial. Like, you know, if you wait for the right time, the right you'll, you'll be dead and then the right time will never have arrived. And yeah, I guess I'm now publicly making that commitment to you. I don't know if this is what you're calling for, but you know, th- there's someone someone out there might be interested. So that's so so yeah, anything that that needs to happen. And so likewise, you know, for 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 writing the book, it's always been like first thing in the morning, write for as long as as long as I can and then and then start work. Um likewise, I mean I think you you have you've written about with Anki, right? Use doing that over breakfast, like finding the time, always doing it till it becomes uh, something that would be weird if you didn't do it. Tied to this, and something I never managed to fully get into in the book is is potentially, and, and so when we think about sleep, is the idea of ritual, right? So before I go to sleep, I um, have been reading Samuel Peach's, Peach's diary for the last six years. Oh, and so who, read- who's that? Is that? Yeah, that's the guy who. 1600s, yeah, 1660s, it's like the fire, most detailed like, record we have of what was going on that time, right? Yeah, it's 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 amazing, and yet also so like you know, so I'd only ever come across it in terms of like historians will use it, and then you know, sometimes like you know, had an argument with my wife, and then you know, like I fell over this, and then we had this meeting, and then sometimes like you've got no idea what he's talking about. It's like you know, sent a letter about my problem with such and such to so and so, and like no one knows where the letter. Anyway, it's great, it's really good. Um, but so like read that and then I write my own diary that I've been this 
time round. It's been going on for like eight, eight, nine years. And then I'll read for a bit and then I'll go to sleep. And so that's interesting. A, because it's a habit. Like, it's weird if I don't do it. But B, um, I think there is a, like, having written stuff in my diary, if I had a good day, like, if I had a bad day, once it's written in the diary, it's kind of gone. Like, it's, it's, it's close the page. Don't have to think about it anymore. Um, so that probably helps my conscience slightly. I guess when we talked about those sort of um, Wi-Fi and the distractions and turning off the router, I guess the, the one other thing that springs to mind is my poor son being born after I started writing this book about habits and behavior change. Uh, it's made, it made me think really hard about what I wanted him to, to, to do and not do and what habits, like if you think about habit as a, as a response to a stimulus and, and as a routine pattern of action, if he throws food on the floor, if he throws something on the floor and I pick it up, that creates a situation in which he gets to throw things on the floor and I have to pick them up, which is just not a thing that I'm that keen on long run. Likewise, if he does something like rude or unpleasant and I just get on with life, I'm conveying like that, like, you know, be the thing that you want to see, right? So from the youngest age, when he'd throw a thing on the floor, I'd like pick him up. Like, what do you need to do? You need to put it on the table. And likewise, if he like does something like, at the moment he's in a kind of thrash, so if he thrashes out when he's really tired, like, he needs to say sorry and like do the thing, do it again, like sort of stroke your arm. Um, so to try and form, and yeah, things like, you know, saying thank you, bye-bye and thank you to the people uh, working at nursery every day at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, just, I th- it makes me like look at everything around, like what do you want in a lasting way and how do you then make that happen? And, you know, I wish I could claim I was, I was a paragon. There are loads of things. We moved house about four months ago. There's loads of just like boxes and stuff that still, but ultimately I think that just means I don't prioritize that as much as like writing Viking fiction or trying to make my son not throw things around the room. How's it going with the 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 son influencing? Is he is he he's a three year old? Is he throwing stuff around? Like, have you had some real? I assume that you've been tracking this, Harry, and you've got a you've got a, a you've got a spreadsheet of items of food slash whatever categorized and the frequency at which they hit the ground or whatever. But what are some areas with your son? I'm really interested in this that you've actually you've really had some wins and you're like, oh, I know I know that worked. I mean, it's tricky. So so like people often be like, oh, he's such a charming boy and that's because they've seen him when he's out and at the end of the day when he's knackered he's vile and so you know like all human beings are are, are many people inside at once i definitely think like the sort of the the politeness like you, you get your pleases and thank yous for the most sometimes with prompting sometimes not i think that makes a difference but you know yeah it's just it's hard it's, i'm not i'm not going to claim any, any form of causation because it's hard hard to tell like what would he have done anyway like maybe he's just like a sort of fairly nice person most of the time anyway so it makes no difference yeah come back ask me that again in like 25 years time and we'll have some kind of uh, some kind of answer yeah right i'll probably just have a beer with him in that time and ask him i mean is it, get yeah that'd be, that'd be worth it that'd be good and then I'll see if he throws anything on the ground at the pub. And if he does, I'll tell him to pick it up. If he does, <laughs> please. <laughs> um, okay, cool. One of the things in terms of like, you know, that Viking example, for example, writing a chapter or a short story every week. One of the things like, like I get that. I get like you want to do something, you like make a commitment, you make a habit. The issue I have is then I'll make like 10 of them. It's like I'm going to write this a week. I'm going to write this. Is Do you have a way of being like, I have many this many slots of time. This is going to take this long. Therefore, I have the capacity to do this many projects. Plus, I need some flexibility in my life. Like, how do you? And you know, this comes down to that priorities thing slash priority thing. Do you have a way of managing that? So, I have a way of doing that on a weekly basis, which is kind of the Stephen Covey thing of picking two or three priorities 
Uh, and initially I was didn't work and then I started doing it in, in life as well. I'm like, what's the two or three things you're trying to achieve? Slot them in, move the slots around. And then every week you've, you've kind of achieved a certain thing. In the bigger terms of like, what am I going to do? I'll, I'll, I'll sort of think or talk to myself at certain stages where I'm like, okay, like what is the thing? What's the biggest thing that I need to be doing? What's the biggest contribution I can make? And I'll try and explicitly like prioritize to say like, here's the thing that I really care about. And so given given this choice of like, okay, I've got an extra hour, I'm going to do more of this and less of that. I'm, I'm going to make that commitment. And then when I have to make make the choice, it will be easy. So, you know, another interesting thing, I think, is the idea of creating heuristics for yourself, owing to like, so heuristics being decision rules, as I'm sure you know. The idea of making like decisions are really difficult. Make it easy for yourself. And the old like you know Barack Obama would always have like eight pretzels or whatever it was. So he didn't have to. Think, and he always wore the same clothes. He didn't have to think about what he was going to wear. He could get on with thinking about like what to do. So in the same vein, I realized a few years ago like menus are really stressful. There's loads of things on there. So like if I saw a thing on the menu that made me go into the restaurant, I'll have that and I won't look at menu anymore. Uh, if there's some, I'll look at the house specials and if something looks good on there, I'll have that. I don't often cook fish at home, so if I see something nice with fish, I'll eat that and won't look any further. So like finding ways to make decisions easy for yourself. So in the same way, I'll try and come up with decisions say, okay, I care more about X than Y. So given the choice, I'll prioritize X. All of which is not to say like, you know, there's these Viking things have been coming and going and like, oh, write this other book and I'll try and write in the evenings and the evenings aren't working out. So it's, you know, nothing's Nothing's foolproof. Yeah, got it. I was interested, like your your book, Responsive Teaching, which hasn't had a mention today, but it was incredibly, incredibly popular book and very influential in education. You know, you wrote that book and you've written this other book. I'm curious the process or the thought or the kind of how you went about writing a book after a really successful book. Did you feel a pressure there? Did, did it weigh on your mind? Anything like that? So I've always, I've always thought you should write lots of books because if you write lots of books, at least one of them might be good and might have a last, lasting impact because you've got no way, you know, like the book that like loads of people like this year will be forgotten next year and the book that no one likes initially will be a slow burn and like, you know, cult classic in 100 years time or whatever. So, you know, write loads of books. I'd say in some sensing, senses, writing has gone easier because having written with each book you're like okay like i i can a i know i can get a book finished and b i can write something that that you know people seem to find useful uh, when you're in the middle of it and you're trying to get across and this one was was awful like the last six eight ten months i was just like i was like oh, i'm gonna like because the first one i just like i wrote in about like a year i learned a lot i had loads of reading to do but i was like training on it the whole time this one was like well i have a child so like loads of my writing time is gone it was a lot harder. There was a lot more learning to do. I restructured it completely. I reworked how all the references were going to. I just, yeah. So it was, it was, it was horrible. But knowing, knowing that, like, okay, well, this, I, I can definitely do this. I know someone will publish it. Like, it's. I think there's something in it. It's. It was. I didn't. I didn't feel that kind of pressure hugely. Yeah. And I was talking to um, Alex Quigley about this a while ago, and he was talking about how, like, Alex and someone else, and it was like writing writing your first book so like ticked off is not not the best book it's probably not the book that's that anyone's going to be reading in, in a few years time but writing one book helps you know that you can write books and brings you some some confidence so it's that kind of like starting small and then just just yeah keep going chip away at it mm. yeah great and i'll thank you because you know as i've been writing over the last couple of years of reached out to you for advice and suggestions from time to time so i just wanted to acknowledge knowledge the help you've given me and the advice and some some reading you've done and and I remember when I first 
signed a contract for a book and I said, oh, you know, I'm feeling quite intimidated. I don't know if I'll do it. And you said, it's just like writing a bunch of blog posts one after the other and tying them all together. And you, I'm sure you managed. So that was really encouraging. I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. I can probably, I can probably do that. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that. Do you have any particular writing processes or, or kind of information storage and management processes that you've developed over the years? Because that's a huge thing, right? Like you've read so much in terms of retaining the ideas and in a usable form. What, what's that process like for you? So, so two things. I have a spreadsheet where I put in everything that I read, every article, like not like little like journal article or longer, everything that I read and I'll do like a – the, the keyword and a little summary of what it says and, and uh, any great quote quotations. And that's really helpful because, yeah, you know, like, come back, like, did I really read this? It was like three years ago and it's gone. And so being able to refer back and sort of know what you thought first time around is, is quite helpful. So that's that's the kind of input. Um, I'd say blogging is invaluable because it is it's a way of processing and getting stuff written up and, and it like outsources your memory in some ways, like, cause you can then come back to, to, so you asked me the question about not using the East framework. And I was like, I think I wrote a blog about this when I decided to do that. So I went back to that bef- before we talked and was like, okay, this, that is what, and, and was reminded of like one of the reasons that in the, cause you know, we can't re- reconstruct our past mental states particularly accurately, whereas the blog allows you to do that. So I think that way of capturing ongoing and, and you know, quite often as I'm, I'm writing things, I'm like, I wrote a blog about this and I'll go back to the blog and I can, I can hardly take any of it because my thinking and understanding has changed. But it's nice to have and go back to and like even just as a reference to like stuff that I've read in, in the past is, is really useful. And, and I guess, sorry, yeah, then in terms of writing process beyond that, I just kind of write like it's not very systematic. I just like write as it comes and just write really badly and then do like loads and loads and loads and loads of editing. Okay. And that just goes on forever. <laughs> Got it. Because this book, it's incredibly structured. It's like every every chapter is set out. It's like we're up to this step in the Simplify framework now. Here's the chapter map. At the end, it's like here's the, you know, here's a table that represents all the ideas in the chapter. Is that just something that organically kind of evolves through the writing process and the refinement process or you, or do you actually start with that? No, I start. No, I start with the organic writing process and put the the, the the props in later, and that's about making the book usable for for others rather than I wish I knew as much in advance as the structure looks like at the end. I mean, I moved like I moved, I completely changed the structure. I moved stuff from one chapter to another because of the feedback that I got, like and re- like yeah, th- realized things as I wrote, and you're like, it's not going to fly. I'm going to have to delete this. I'm going to have to move that. So so no, the structure has to come quite. The checklist and stuff have to come really late. Cool. Yeah, great. That's really interesting. You said you've been doing a fair bit of research on institutional behavior change. Uh, I'm not doing a a fair bit of research. It's probably a a slight overstatement. I've been really interested in why do do institutions function? Why do things work? Why do things not work? Um, why, Why was the British response to coronavirus so poor and so slow that it got thousands and thousands of people killed but also why you know like because then i'm like oh you know we should be more like south korea and taiwan and australia and now it's like well okay why do so few why did the countries that managed to get stage one of the pandemic so right 
struggle so much with with stage two and you look at like countries like countries like taiwan they've had now australia they're having a big delta outbreaks um countries like hong kong that just can't get people vaccinated so like never going to be able to reopen at this stage at this rate and but then within that like what are the decision making structures like why in in march april may did we have scientists saying masks could actively make put people more at risk like it just doesn't make any sense it didn't make any sense at the time and yet that was what these people whose whole job was to like prepare us and keep us safe were were saying why you know like why did the afghan army collapse and why did no one know that no one whose job it was to know like people on the ground sure as hell knew but like why why was that information not transmitting to where it was needed allowing people to make effective decisions there's a lot there's a lot going on there and it's just really interesting of like why and and like is it our institutions is it culture what can you do about that so that next time there's a pandemic or whatever we are better equipped to deal with that and equally why so like i'd say the, the british like the only thing britain got right in the entire pandemic was the vaccine task force and then the vaccine rollout so like why did they manage to do that so well when they screwed everything else up so comprehensively and i think if we could uh, like talk about and answer those questions more we could probably fix some more social issues better i don't know what do you what do you think i think um you've asked a lot of excellent questions <laughs> That's, that's a cop out. We're going to have to reverse this, and I'm going to interview you, and I want to know what you think. All right, I'm, just just start a podcast, and then I'll be on there, Harry. Oh God. <laughs> One more thing, yeah. <laughs> um, after the Viking series, I think. No, I agree. I think I think they're all huge and and excellent questions, and I'm I'm interested when you're talking there. I'm interested in the the role of in, just individuals within there because you, you get. I think the power of leadership is so enormous and the way that a good leader empowers the people beneath them and alongside them and helps them to, you know, take initiative, take ownership, all these kind of things. I think you can just go from a completely dysfunctional organization to an incredibly effective one. So my first thought when you said that task force, I was like, I wonder who was in charge of that because maybe there was just someone who knew how to get shit done. And so, yeah, it's it's kind of like there's an institutional thing, there's a leadership thing, there's a leadership personality thing, there's the to what extent can that be taught kind of a thing. Like, I mean, I've answered your question with lots of other questions, which I think is a is a fun way to go back and forth. But yeah, suffice to say, super important issues to think about. And, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of lives and, and livelihoods and families and relationships and things like that. Um, very important. What are you doing a PhD on? Uh, teacher behavior change. So teacher habits, also been looking a little bit about well-being, burnout, ways to improve communications between school leaders and teachers and improve those relationships. It's still early stages and or I should have done more than I already have. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what the title looks like at the end. Don't know. Okay. Is there a specific question you're trying to, because that's quite broad what you've said, which is usually the problem with most PhDs, <laughs> the student wants to do everything. But yeah, what's, what are you targeting? The question I think I'm meant to be answering is like, how can you help teachers to change their habits? But the cool thing about doing a PhD, I don't know what you're, what you're finding. I'd love, love to hear a bit about yours, but like, is that you kind of can poke your nose into other things, at least at the start. It's like, you know, so I've, I've learned lots from other people working with the, the same supervisor who are working with to try and help social workers uh, improve or who are working to try and change pension saving and that kind of thing. Mm. Awesome. What's yours about? 
I haven't actually kind of announced it yet. Um, so oh. uh, this is uh, this is interesting. I'll have to reflect upon whether this is going live or not. But um, yes, the thing that's most interested to, to me, and this is it's a line that, that you said before. That I thought mm, do I, I don't know if I agree with that. You said self regulation can't be causal to lead to expertise, and I was like, hmm, not sure if I agree with that because what I what I am most interested in at the moment is self-regulated learning and the extent to which we support students to do that. I think that is so crucial and I especially in the way that knowledge is so freely available right now and there are such incredible courses. You know, like I'm teaching myself German at the moment. I found this amazing online course. It's teaching me so well, but also that in tandem with my ability to self-regulate, to build a habit around doing it is helping me get through it, you know, but and I imagine so many people would fail to take advantage of that course because they couldn't self-regulate. And I think that's going to be more and more and more relevant as the way we share information and, you know, organize information changes and becomes more digital. And the gap between the people who can self-regulate and those who can't is going to grow and grow and grow and grow because of that. So I think that's the most important thing. But starting small, we're just looking at basically the question of after a student does a quiz, what do they do after that? And how do they learn from that? And how can we prompt students to use that that learning opportunity more effectively? So we could call it self-driven formative assessment would be one way to describe it. But I think that's crucial. And that's just a very small part of a very big challenge. And so if we can get if we can show significant gains on that, then you stack something on top of it, and then you stack something on top of it, and you can crack it up and crack it up and crack it up. And before you know it, hopefully they're going through this whole plan, active monitor and reflect cycle themselves. That sounds amazing, like so a really powerful thing to to teach students about. And I think the bigger question is fascinating. And, and the, the terrifying thing about the internet and, and particularly the mobile phone is the way, if we talked about this sort of thing of immediacy and re, uh, reward and effort and so on, is the way it pr- puts every conceivable immediate reward other than the hard work of start studying German. Like, why would you do that when you could just watch a cat video? Exactly. Something you've watched 200,000 cat videos uh, and never learned German. And I think that's, I, th- I think you're totally right about like the, the potential impact on, on society and like the difference between Herb Simon idea of, you know, when information is abundant, attention is what becomes scarce. And that's why I unplug the router because there's a million things that I'd be interested in doing. And if I look at even two of them, I'm never going to write the next book. hundred percent. hundred percent. So, Coming back to that statement, self-regulation can't be causal to lead to expertise. Do you do you stand by that? Have, have I challenged that? What do you reckon? I tentatively stand by it. I'm going to defer to your PhD when you get. I'd, lo- I'd love to. I'd love to hear hear more about it at some point um, when when you're further into it. I think I just think self-regulation is really hard, and so I'd rather teach. You know, I could reframe what you said as like actually what you want to teach students is a set of habits to and now is that self regulate yeah, I guess they're self-regulatory habits, they're things I'm going to explicitly teach. Um and our our routines. I think if you taught them I definitely think if you taught them the kind of routines we've been talking about, I would expect your students to do better. It'll be interesting to see how yeah, I guess so so, so the challenge is like to what extent can you self-regulate autonomously, I think. And which obviously it seems tautologous because self, but but like if you're teaching students this routine, is that autonomous? To what extent when they are learning at home, do they stop and think to do their self-regulation? And if they're doing it as a habit, great, tick, easy, I think. If they're in a novel situation or learning something new, harder unless they've been taught it as a habit would be my hunch. 
Yeah, but I'd also I'd be surprised if sustained effort and attention on this didn't improve student learning. Mm, yeah, 100%. I guess the difference between the habit and the self self-regulated if we think about it more broadly is the habit can be what's well, the it's the conscious versus unconscious kind of a thing right and it's whether that habit fits into a broader mental model that the student has around what they're trying to achieve and the ability that they have to you know set in motion a process that's going to iteratively move them towards that goal and i guess that was an that's another big question i have around this habit thing and and i guess your book as well like to me the ultimate goal is putting the knowledge about how to do these habits how to establish them in the hands of students so that they can really harness the power. And that's what you do in the book. You're trying to put it in the hands of the teachers. And then I throw questions at you like, how have you used this in your own life? And I think ultimately when we do convey that knowledge to people, hopefully, maybe with prompting, but hopefully eventually autonomously they go, oh, actually, I have been trying to write the, that that book series on Vikings. Maybe I can use some of these strategies to achieve that goal. Hmm. And then, you know, and then they that become a self-regulated learner. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can definitely buy that. And it is that, general app it's the learning of principles and that but that's the really because we know things don't transfer or like they're so reluctant to transfer and so that's the really that's the really hard thing you know like you can teach your students this routine for what to do with it like now yeah okay so this is where i'm going to be really interested can if you ask the students once they built up their routine and then wait another three months say like to what extent do you do this in your other subjects? That's where it's going to get really interesting, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And and we'd love to do some of that because it's the kind of stuff. so I'm working with Alexander Renko. I don't know if you know him. He's like this yeah. this self explanation guy, right? He's mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant. And he's like, yeah. What, so what we should do in a couple of weeks or a couple of months? He's like, just give them a task that's similar in their English class, but don't prompt them at all, and just see if they do it. Yeah. And um, yeah, like if if you can do that, I think it's it's amazing, but it's also, it's a long-term project. And, and, you know, if you teach them habits without teaching them the metacognitive stuff, you can teach them 10 habits and then later be like, look at all these 10 habits you have. Um, these are examples of this broader principle. Where else could you apply that? Or what else, you know, and then it's like, they've got the examples there. I mean, another thing is, you know, I've been working this project um, well, I've worked on various projects in the past and made lots of mistakes. And I, you know, I was working on a company for a while, made lots of mistakes with it. I did a course on like how to do company stuff and had all these principles like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I was like, oh my God, I did all those things. But because I had the examples of like, I could actually understand the broader high, high level principle thing. So I think whatever we do in this space, we're providing the kind of the fertile ground and the examples for students to build on. But what we need to make sure we do, I think, is to give them the opportunity to reach those higher kind of metacognitive levels um, to 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 keep on ta- to keep on taking it to another level, really. Yeah, definitely. And if you if you come back and like lots of the students did it in English, then I will change some of my views at least. It's dead exciting. It's really exciting. I'm really interested to see where you take it. Challenge. Lots of uh, lots of public um public commitments. Public yeah. commitments made today, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I guess to wrap up this kind of self-regulation thing, one of the things that I came across that I thought was a really fantastic idea, I think it was from Salomon and Perkins. I think it was at least from David Perkins. It's the idea of seeing self-regulated learning in, in terms of Pascal's wager. So for those who aren't aware, Pascal's wager is like, does God exist? I don't know. But like, 
if I if I if I'm wrong about God existing and I don't think God does exist, then I'm going to go to hell and that's going to be really really bad. And the cost of you know believing in God is not that high, so I may as well just give it a go. And the upside is going to be great if if it if it works out. So that's really they talked about self regulating learning in terms of that. Like sure, there's a lot of evidence to show, show that transfer is really really hard. You know that you know X Y Z is challenging domain general skills, whatever it may be. But if we can if we can unlock this, it's like the holy grail of teaching and learning. And that's that's why that's kind of how I see it. Um, that's why I'm so excited to work on it, uh, and that's why I think it's worthwhile pursuing. That's it's it's a it's a great it's a good case. It's a really good case. I guess the one thing I throw back to you is like in my prioritization thing is it is it the top? But you know, I think I think you're making a case that it is. Is it the top thing we need to achieve? Well, yeah, it's going to be the lasting the thing that lasts for students. Yeah, hundred percent. I I think another thing is just like finding that intersection between individual passion and the needs of the world. You know, and this is just something like. I can make a rational case for it, but to, to the extent that it's a post hoc justification for the fact that I just find it interesting to explore this area because I think it's really, really fun and challenging. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think you can, but particularly for a PhD that you're doing in your own time around teaching, like you have to love it. You have to, and hopefully you still love it at the end. That's the, 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 the tricky bit. Three, three Twitter recommendations. Who, who do you reckon it's really worth following on Twitter? I thought about this quite hard and thought like who still keep teaching me stuff been on Twitter for like eight, nine years, I think. So Rue Stenning is a teacher, I think a teacher in Bangkok in an international school and consistently across the last eight years, it's just like, here's an interesting paper. Here's a thing. Here's a thing that's worth looking at. He's also very good at finding the uh, unpaywalled versions, so it's, it's a great person to, to follow. Teacher Tap, which I mean, it's it's more than a Twitter site, uh, but it's so it's this you know surveying uh, organisation who uh, survey thousands of British teachers every single day, and also now they're working in the Netherlands and Belgium, um, and just like that insight into what teachers are really thinking, I think is incredibly powerful. And then we talked. We talked about institutions earlier. There's a guy called Nick Hassey who I worked with in in a previous job, and now works for our National Health Service, and is consistently just really interesting on institutions, institutional growth, institutional failure, sport, and the incentives in sport, and so on. So I would strongly recommend following him. Three book recommendations. I'm really keen to hear your answer on this one, Harry. Oh man, this is this is hard, but. Graham Nuttall's Hidden Hidden Lives of Learners has to be up there. I just don't think anyone before or since has done a better job of understanding exactly what's going on in students' heads and in the classrooms. And I also find his like his life's work, his his like the final paper that that he wrote, really inspiring just in terms of like understanding what he learned about classroom rituals and routines and and how easy or hard it is to change things and how easy or hard it is to even learn what's going on in a classroom and how he'd spent like years researching things and then concluded they weren't so important. Uh, everyone everyone should read it, definitely. I I thought about recommending Switch, which is one of the books that kind of inspired me to to write Habits of Success. But then I thought, well, hopefully Habits of Success will like cover cover similar ground in a more education specific way. So and and three was really hard. So the second one I'm going to recommend is Anti Fragile by Nassim Taleb. I mean, I, I find all of his work incredibly thought provoking. It's really influenced like some of the stuff that I've 
uh, done or, or not done. Uh, but this idea of anti-fragility of like, okay, so, you know, if something's fragile, if you smash it, um, if you drop a vase and it, it smashes, so it's fragile. Um, something, the opposite isn't robustness. So if something's robust, it's a vase and you drop it and it doesn't smash. But something that's anti-fragile, if you drop it, it gets stronger. And I guess there's there's a, a you know, and he takes this in all sorts of different directions. One that I think is, is quite interesting to me is, is the idea of like feedback and improving interactions, improving relationships through feedback. So if you say like, there's some studies being done showing, I think that like people's, how people um, view a business after they've made a complaint, if there's a good response to the complaint, they ha- can end up with a more positive view of the business than if they didn't make a complaint in the first place, right? So the thing here is like, how can you build in routines of feedback to know what's going on and then action addressing that feedback that allow you to learn from your mistakes uh, or allow you to build your relationships from from problems? So anti-fragile and also people should read everything else. I mean, the, the, the skin in the game stuff is fascinating as well. Third one, Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind. The subtitle is something like Why Good People Disagree About Politics and Religion ever important definitely was part of a journey for me of like sort of understanding other political perspectives or at least if i couldn't understand them pausing and recognizing that that, that like they were held for good and like yeah they, they were they were often like deeply held and deeply believed different worldviews and i guess tied to them we talked talked a lot about institutions uh, as i've grown up a little bit i've very much moved from what scott alexander would call a conflict a sense of why things happen as they are to a mistake sense. A conflict sense is like bad things happen because bad people want them, or like we are constantly in a war between you know the workers and the plutocrats or whoever. And the mistake is just like things are hard. It's hard to like run things well. It's hard to to make companies and health systems and everything well. And people just screw it up. And so yeah, the righteous mind I think is is valuable there. Awesome. And and relating to that last one, um, you talked about you know, if I can't understand, at least I can understand that it's coming from a good place. That relates to another principle that kind of came out in one of your answers before, but I didn't see explicitly in the book, but I think is actually one of the most powerful tools in terms of um, getting people on side or, or that kind of thing. And that's sympathizing. So the actual act, and the way you use this particularly was when you talked about teacher behavior change and actually sympathize. And that's, you know, when I was like, how do we change teachers? You were like, well, actually, firstly, I want to talk about all the reasons they have not to change. And that I think that was such a powerful part of the podcast and such a powerful answer, really, because it would have made anyone who was listening go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And it enables you to approach people in a different way, a more open way, a more forgiving way, you know, and a more, yeah, just a more open way so you can actually have their ideas come in and help them feel part of the process if you do start by sympathizing. Um, and that has to come from an understanding that they are coming from a place that makes sense, um, which is particularly relevant when people have family members who are, you know, a vaccine hesitant or something. I think if we can come from that place of like, well, let's sympathize or understand, seek first to understand um, is a kind of a Quaker Quaker term, seek first to understand, I think we'd be in a much better place than we are. Do you have any comments, comments on that idea of sympathizing? Yeah, it's fascinating. And I guess the, the follow-up that we, we didn't talk about with teachers is is that I say slightly later on in that chapter is like, you know, like if you try a thing and teachers genuinely try it and they think it doesn't work, do something else because they're, they're probably right. Like they may know more than, than you do. I think the Quaker principle that you've, you've shared there, there's, there's a really powerful um, chapter 
section in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of the Highly Effective People, which says it almost exactly the same thing. So seek first to understand and then to be understood. And this idea of listening and understanding someone else's perspective is incredibly, I mean, it's like the most powerful thing you can do. I remember like reading that book and having something that I was um, not very happy about at my school at the time and going in to talk to a senior leader about it. And instead of going in with like, here's all the reasons why this is bad. I just went with a set of questions. And actually, once I listened to the answers to those questions, I didn't have anything more to say. And that, that, um, that will always stick with me. Final thoughts of, you know, I've mentioned this trying to write young adult fiction, and that has got me into like looking at how do you develop good characters. And one of the key principles to, to like developing good characters is like understanding that everyone is the hero of their own story. And so if you're the person who's the hero of your own story trying to bring in a reform effort in your school to make things better, someone else is the hero of their own story trying to obstruct your reform effort, but they're not trying to, so they're trying to like preserve their working conditions or like do something else that is really important to them and to the school. And so if you can, and, and like everyone is telling themselves those stories and I don't want to get too postmodernist about it, but like most of them are right to like at least some extent. And so understanding like what is the other person's story? What what makes them the hero of it? What do they really want is, is probably the only way to achieve lasting lasting and meaningful change around stuff that they really deeply care about and where they're reluctant to change. Yeah, 100%. One final point on this is that it relates to the idea of when we go in to do teacher professional development, recognizing that we are trying to help those teachers continue to be the hero of their own story. And it's not about us coming in and being the hero of anyone else's story. It's about empowering them to be the heroes of their own story as well, which is something that's taken me a while to learn. But I think I understand it a bit, bit better now. Yeah. And this is, you know, if you come in and say the thing that you've been doing, obviously you wouldn't say it word for word, but if you imply like the thing that you've been doing is wrong and I'm going to tell you the right thing to do, you're potentially telling them they've spent 20 years busting a gut trying to do stuff that's that's unhelpful. And so starting from a place that recognizes what they've done, why they've done it. And there's almost certainly good bits in what they're doing. And focusing on that, I think, is, is much more powerful than any other uh, other alternative. Mm. Now, the book you've actually referenced, aside from your own, the book that you've referenced, referenced the most times during this podcast, Harry, is by Laura McInerney. You've been tracking, not book, but, you know, uh, Laura's work and blogging and thinking, yeah. I don't know if I know Laura McInerney. Can you um, tell us about her and some, some of her stuff? Laura, yeah, was was like my sort of teaching crush when she started. She was like a year ahead of me on Teach First, which is equivalent to Teach for Australia. Uh, and they brought her back as like a sort of, you know, as a role model for us, which she successfully was. And I went and visited her in my second year teaching when she was teaching actually really near to where I now live in a school that was literally falling down. Like I went in and this kid came up to me and said, Sir, are you an inspector? And can you get the school shut down? I'm like, what? Why? And he's like, well, the roof collapsed. And then the teacher comes in. The roof had collapsed over Christmas. It was meant to be rebuilt. Anyway, then like Laura went and did a, uh, started a PhD and then got really involved in freedom of information uh, and was editor for several years of a new school's newspaper and now works at and leads Teacher Tap. Um, one of the smartest people I know. Yeah. People, should, I mean, she's, she's she's well known in Britain, but if you're not not in Britain, you should probably track her down on Twitter and everywhere else, and, and sort of see what she's up to because it's almost always good and it's almost always interesting. Awesome. Well, that that leads well into my next question, which is, what are you currently excited about, Harry? So, three things, I think. The thing I'm particularly excited about is that I'm going to be moving fairly soon into a new role, looking for ways to help heads 
better understand what's going on with their teachers and hopefully find ways to to make make schools better as a result i can't say a huge amount about it at the moment but yeah really excited about it i think there's potential to in the same way that the exit tickets are a really powerful way to help teachers know what is happening and therefore to to change their teaching i think there's paid probably like quite a small there's quite easy small cost ways to do this that could be really really powerful so that is exciting i'm really excited about um vaccination so i have been volunteering since december since our rollout started in vaccination centers in the uk and then trained as a vaccinator and it's just like it's been really interesting to do something else it's been really nice to do when like everything else is falling apart to be doing something to chip away to try and solve it and that's just been fascinating because it's been fun to work with loads of like literally the entire spectrum of humanity Uh, and i've met them all starting with the people in their their 90s and working our way down like we had 16 17 year olds coming in uh, when i was last there on monday so that is is fun and then finally this this sort of bigger question of progress and decline and this idea of you know do do we need a a sort of field of progress studies to to find out how do you make things better like we're surprised we're incredibly well informed about like loads of things in economics and loads of things in science and how badly the climate change is going and we're incredibly poorly performed and like how do you make a government function really well how do you make a company function really well how do you mobilize social action towards you know this that and the other so those are three things that i'm just enjoying or excited about or looking forward to working more on any last calls to action harry things you'd like listeners to go away today and do so you should definitely get vaccinated if if you haven't (laughs) like 100 percent there is no excuse there's no data justifying not doing it so go do it i think probably you know you should probably buy the book but you know whatever you've heard the podcast you've, you've heard all the highlights find the smartest people you disagree with and read their work right so, so going back to this understanding thing uh, it's very easy to your side will be busy dunking on the uh, stupidest points made by your opponents the interesting thing is to find the really smart people who you disagree with and try and learn from them and there'll almost certainly be something in it but there's no smart people on the other side harry that's true they're all they're all evil evil maniacs and then, so i guess you know the reason why like the reason i'm saying that is just trying to be more specific than like oh be nice to people who are like who are different than you it's like find out why people are different than you and find out from these specific people and see whether that whether you can learn from it Mm, that's awesome great action love it well uh yeah i'm gonna want some kind of tracking of like your podcast listeners of how many people have actually done it but but we'll see what does that mean for a teacher so that's the general like find the smart people on the other side and and read their work for an actual teacher who feels like you know maybe I don't know. They feel like what Michaela's is doing is horrendous, or they feel like what Summerhill, the you know free school with no rules, whatever they have rules, obviously, but you know people see it as having no rules. They think that's horrendous, or they disagree with this or the lot. So what what would you suggest to them in terms of something to do if the other, if Michaela had, well they have written a book, but if they hadn't written a book or something like that? I I think I'd really suggest that the best thing to do if you can swing it is is to go and visit, right? To go and see, and I, I think the reason why that's powerful so mary kennedy has i mean all her papers are good but has a particularly good paper about organizing our thinking about um teaching around fundamental problems so we say like our principles are modeling feedback whatever well you know we can argue about that but we say like the problems that all teachers no matter how good they are have to face are things like portraying complicated curriculum content to, to naive minds or like understanding what students are thinking given that that is hidden from us and so the, the first thing you're going to notice, and that, again, is another reason why I'll, I'll start any discussion by talking about problems, because the problems, wherever you are, we, we all have in common. 
So if I'm anti-Michaela and I go to Michaela, or if I am at Michaela and I go to Summerhill or wherever, one thing that I'm going to see is how everyone is is finding their own ways as the hero in their own story to, to try and address these similar problems. I think we're also a lot of the time going to find more similarities than differences in the way, like it's, we like to argue and we like to get really het up about nuances of language. And there's often a huge overlap between what different people are doing. Even from almost like you might you come from a different philosophical place, but you, you do things that are really pragmatic. So even, you know, I I place myself much more on the like, I think kids should probably learn some knowledge and knowledge is really important. It's in fact the building block of, of everything. Um, but I definitely as a teacher do loads of like, you know, motivating starters because if you don't boost, you know, the most knowledge centered lesson in the world, if the kids don't want to do it, you're not going to achieve anything. Um so so recognizing that actually for all our beliefs, there's there's often a middle ground. And and that we might learn from them. So yeah, just, you know, go and see each other's schools. Uh, and yeah, I think that's that's where I'd start. And I get, you know, we're getting to pie in the sky now, but like read the stuff. Some education writing is frustrating because it's either people trying to prove a point or pontificate about abstract points. And I'm much more interested in the concrete and the specific. So, you know, sit down with someone who you think opposes you and say, well, what would you do when a student comes into the room and uh, you know, refuses to do X. And again, you're, you're like, you're going to almost certainly agree on quite a lot of it. And you might learn from each other about the remaining 20%. Like, ah, that's, that's probably worth a try because no one has cracked it all. That's great. What would you say? Yeah, I think, I think, remind me to come back to that last question in terms of what did you, what would you do if a student came in misbehaving or whatever? Remind me to come back to that. I think that the power of visiting other schools and other contexts is just enormous. Like a paper, a paper came out here in Australia within the last week or something. It was called something like Why Inquiry Learning Harms Children. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. It's got, it's got a fair bit. It's actually written by John Sweller, who obviously I have a close relationship with. I have a lot of respect for, but I mean, if I were to write a response to that, it would be something like why polarizing titles hurt education. But the reason why I kind of had a bit of a visceral reaction to that is because, like you said, I think so many of these terms are poorly defined. And when we argue against things, we very rarely spend the time to understand what the other person is actually talking about when they talk about inquiry or whatever. Obviously, like, I love cognitive load theory. You know, I wrote a book about it, love explicit instruction, etc. But I went to Taiwan and I watched I watched this teacher who'd had a couple of research papers written about her, about her approach to inquiry learning. I will still maintain the four or five, I spent a day with her, the four or five less science lessons from year five to eight that I saw her teach that day were probably the best lessons, full stop, I have ever seen in my life. A lot, lot of inquiry, but it was highly structured. She knew exactly what the students wanted to learn. Their norms of engagement were like dialed into a T to the point that they packed up everything from, you know, gauze mats to Bunsen burners to throwing their four, tucking on the bit in like two minutes at the end of the class. The checks for understanding were constant. You know, she started with review of prior learning, but the whole lesson, the whole meat of the lesson was driven by a question that the students answered through an inquiry process, which was then generalized, talked about, codified, and then will be revisited in the next lesson. I was like, oh my God, that was amazing. You know, it was in Mandarin. My Mandarin's pretty broken, but even through the, the language barrier, I was able to go, that is literally, that is just teaching, almost teaching perfection, right? And so when I see, see papers that are polarizing like this, I think you just got to go and see it. Because you just cannot judge until you go and set foot. And the amount that you learn to improve, even if you're like, 
all about inquiry and you've got a Michaela, you will learn some amazing things. Even if it's like stand up at the end and say you're grateful, or even if it's about norms of engagement or something like that, you will learn things and conversely go in the other way. So long way of saying, couldn't agree more. I read it, it was like an aside and it was to do with was in this book about expertise and it was to do with how like there'd been some big debate about one thing and then like after 15 years people just kind of stopped debating it because it just they, they came with up with a new paradigm and it just wasn't important important anymore and so it turns out that like you can spend 15 years being like bang 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 what should we do what should we do this is good this is bad i hate you i hate you and then you've got this new perspective and suddenly all your old debates are irrelevant and kind of that's obviously very hard to remember in the moment but yeah like us you know how much is this stuff going to matter but you know like in britain we spent five years being like brexit this brexit that brexit yes good bad and then suddenly we're like two percent of economy this that and the other suddenly there's a pandemic and like all bets are off and so we just spent like four years and you know don't get me wrong it's still an important question and all the consequences are uh substantial but but it is like it's just like, hmm, you thought you were doing one thing and then you were completely blindsided by something completely different. And so remembering that, like, the stuff that you really care about that you think you're going to, like, oh, if we kill inquiry learning, the world will be a better place. Um, someone else, like, you know, in 10 years, 20 years time, you probably won't think that. So get ahead of yourself. Yeah, we probably won't be talking about inquiry versus explicit. Right. We'll hopefully be talking about, you know, how do you check for understanding or, or you know, they just, you know, I do it in this way, I do it in this way. Great. They both sound like they work or whatever. Yeah. I tie a knot in my tie and managed to you wanted to come back to yeah it, managed to remember there was something i wanted to come back to which was um before the example you gave was like ask them how would you deal with this i read a really good book recently i actually did an online course which summarized the book by the book of the author of the book it's called the mum test by rob fitzpatrick's and fitzpatrick and it's about asking questions that get to this real story rather than the hypothetical story I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but it's like, instead of saying, what would you do if you ask, what did you do the last time this happened? And suddenly people stop talking hypotheticals and they go, oh, what was the last time? Oh, it was actually this thing. And I actually did this because it's like, what do you do? What what do you usually do when, you know, when you want to lose weight? Oh, well, I will want to go for a run every day and I'll reduce my, or it's like, what did you do the last time you wanted to lose weight? I said I'd lose weight and then I went for three runs and then I stopped. (laughs) So yeah, it's just, it's um, just a little, another fun fact to add into the podcast. Well, that's another way to like get people specific on point. So, right. And so there's a a really nice one that I saw from um, Professor Karen Edge at our Institute of Education in in London. And her thing is, should we be talking about, you know, oh, we do this, we do that. And she's like, so, okay, so I'm a teacher. What ha- and it's just so powerful. It's like, oh, you know, we're a big this and we do that. And okay, so I'm a participant. What happens? What do I experience? What do I see? What do- and, and getting people to talk about the, yeah, love it. Great. Awesome. Ran out of questions. That's all the questions. That was the last question. That was the that was definitely the longest we've ever talked about the last question, any last calls to action. It's, well, I mean, we've ranged substantially further than uh, than I was expecting to, but it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And yeah, I do. I mean, setting up a podcast might be too too much, but if you ever want to do like a round number and have a guest host interviewing you, I feel like uh, there's a lot more that I would like to hear from you about what, you, what you're up to. Thanks, Harry. I appreciate that. You beat me to the wrap-up, but I will also thank you. Thank you, Harry Fletcher, good for coming in today. It has been an absolute pleasure. I love having guests on like yourself where I feel like I can just throw stuff out there and go left and right and see where we end up. And it's just a really fun exploration together, what Neil Merce would call an exploratory talk. It's great. And, you know, I also want to thank you for all the work you've done over the years. You know, you're in terms of tweeters, 
Um, and you're talking about people who've like Ruth Stenning, who's, who's continually taught you and provided value to you over the years. Like you are probably, probably the number one for me. Like I know if I look on your Twitter, there'll be a summary of a paper or there'll be something that'll just be a really interesting, like often quite niche, often very diverse, um, idea. And it's just always value and, so thank you so much for that. Thank, thank you for doing all the work you do. Thanks for coming on the podcast and having some great chats. And um, can't wait to hear, you know, what you do with your PhD, all the other exciting work that you're doing, some of which is public and some of which is, is soon to be announced. Uh, the paper with Sam Sims, it'll be coming out soon. Um, and just, just everything, everything, Harry. And I, I hope, hope we can stay in touch. It's been a pleasure. And yes, I hope so too. Thanks so much, Ellie. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Each Will Our Podcast with Harry Fletcher Wood. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure that you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the Each Will Our Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other Each Will Our episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.